why do pitch mixes matter and how can we use them? I'll ask Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 16th. It's show number 36 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast, discussing pitch mixes, pitch-by-pitch swing and miss, and more than 20 players, as well as his boons and banes for the rest of the season. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports, Harold Nichols covering the National League, including the closer situations in Atlanta and New York, and Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including Michael Chavis, Avisail Garcia, and other American League players. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about opportunities for advantage in the remaining schedule. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Los Angeles right-hander Tony Gonsolin. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at St. Louis right-hander Jack Flaherty in Cincinnati to face left-hander Alex Wood. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about who's on first in 2020. It's another big Friday full edition for you. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have our first 40 homer guys in each league. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, on Thursday, the Dodgers' Cody Bellinger, building his MVP case, hit his 40th home run of 2019 in a loss at Miami, a three-run shot into the upper deck in the seventh inning off Miami right-hander Austin Bryce. Meanwhile, fellow Los Angelino Mike Trout also bashed his 40th on Thursday, a solo jack 419 feet to center field off Ronaldo Lopez of the White Sox. That was part of a 4-for-4 night for Mike Trout in an 8-7 Angels win. Both the Dodgers and the Angels have 39 games left this season, so the race to 50 home runs is now on. Who you got? Well, I'll tell you who I've got. In the first inning of our Friday Full Edition, I've got Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. It's part one of our feature expert interview, and Rob, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back. It's been a long time. It has. uh, Too long, in fact. Uh, How are your teams doing so far this year? I'd say it's a 6 out of 10, which is if the season ended today, it would be a fine but disappointing season. But there's a quarter of the season still to go, and almost all my teams, if I quote-unquote, win the last quarter, which is one way to look at it, right? Like, you can't, you can't control what's happened in the first three quarters of the season. You can control the next quarter to some extent. If I win the, the last quarter in a lot of my leagues, then it's easy to see how the path to, if not winning the league, at least placing in the money uh, comes together. And that's all you can ask for at this time of the year. There's nothing worse, especially in redraft leagues, than, than like, holding the two and the seven in your hand and knowing you're basically drawing blank. And you play it out because we're all good owners, but it's frustrating and it's tiring. And Sundays when you're doing your fab become that much more 
painful, and we're all tired to some extent this time of the year, as lovely a summer as it's been. So it's, it's exciting still having a shot, and most of my leagues I still have that shot. You raise an interesting point about being a good owner. You're supposed that uh, some of your leagues are a second division team, like all of us, and you get uh, called upon by the by the contenders in your league to think about making some trades. And there's a school of thought that says if you're not in a position to compete for the title, you shouldn't be making trades that help somebody else compete for a title. I don't abide by that, but what do you think? Well, I mean, in, in keeper leagues, in dynasty leagues, it's pretty simple. You have, a, you, you have an obligation to your team, but that can mean long-term. So in keeper leagues, we know that they have, you do quote-unquote dumb trades, and that's part of the game. Redraft's way tougher. Where I fall, I think, is similar to you, which is we can't tell owners, you've got to play out the whole season. We want good owners who play from the start of the season right to the last day of the season, but you can't do this one thing. You can't trade. You can do everything else. In fact, we expect you to do everything else, but this one thing, that's off limits in very arbitrary ways, right? Like if you're out of it on June 1st, can you still make trades to improve your team? Well, well sure you can because it's only June 1st. And how about July 1st or is August 1st the arbitrary cutoff line? Like it's, 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 I, I think it's both unfair, it's hypocritical, uh, and it doesn't work because you're creating arbitrary uh, limits. So I'm a believer, uh, as long as there's no collusion, it's frustrating if you're the team in second place and the team in first place or vice versa makes what you think is a, is a lopsided trade, but it's part of the game. And the alternative is no trade leagues. And I play mostly in the NFBC. There's no trades, and I don't miss trades in, in those leagues. But that's the alternative. I don't think it's arbitrary rules. You can't trade or you shouldn't trade uh, if you're in last place. It's either if this is a trading league, then we expect everybody to, in, in good faith, manage their team uh, to the best of their ability from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. Yeah, I agree with that position. I've also seen uh, some commentary. I wrote a, a Master Notes column about this a little while ago, and I got some comments back from readers and, and from fellow experts and so forth uh, saying, well, one of the solutions can be you can, after a certain deadline, say the All-Star break or August 1st or whatever you like, uh, first of all, it is arbitrary, as you say, but the solution is you can only trade with another team that's within so many positions of you. So if you're 10th, you can't trade any higher than with the guy who's in 6th or something like that. And what I thought about that was, you know, that's a pretty good way to make sure no trades happen at all, because if you're in 10th, chances are, or there is a chance that the guy in sixth could be a guy you're going to try to catch. And, and, and so seventh, eighth, and ninth. So if you're only allowed to trade with those guys, they're all going to say no, because they don't want you to catch them. I, I, I agree entirely. I think for, for, for long running leagues, so, so leagues that can redraft leagues, but that, that it's this basically the same owners year after year, the best solution is for next year's draft order or next year's fab amount or for there to be some kind of incentive to finish as high as possible and some kind of a penalty if, if you finish last or if you finish too low. So that that team in 10th who's making the trade with the team in second isn't only doing it out of you know a, some notion of good faith, I'm trying to be as active as possible and I'm trying to do well. It's that I have a real incentive to go from 10th place to 8th place. And even though nobody else cares, I care deeply about going from 10th place to 8th place. Why? 
Because if I finish 8th instead of 10th, I have, let's say, the 4th pick overall next year instead of the 6th pick overall. Or if I finish 8th or higher, then I get 100% of my fab, but every team under 8th uh, place, you know, the bottom four teams, they get you know, only 80% of the fab dollars for next year's league. Whatever the method is, I think having those kinds of incentives to incentivize teams to do as well as they can and penalize teams to do badly uh, that's the way to keep people honest. And to keep them active, which I think is re- uh, really what we should be trying to encourage because uh, the last thing you want is a league where, you know, you've got four guys at the top who are really hustling. You've got four guys in the middle who are kind of, you know, looking at their team and keeping an eye on it, but they're also looking at their fantasy football team or they're looking at their NFBC team, which has got a bit better of a chance and so on. And then you have the bottom four guys who just throw in the towel, you know, around the 1st of August and they don't do anything. And the argument, I think, in favor of keeping those guys active is if you are in 10th spot and you're not managing your team actively, you are affecting the race because you're not picking up a waiver player who could end up on the fourth place team uh, as an impact player because you're not doing the things that, that you should be doing and therefore allowing teams up the standings to have opportunities that they really ought not to have if you were doing your job. Absolutely, and I think that is a much bigger problem in more leagues. It's not guys who are doing... Um, ridiculous trades because they, they don't care or because their buddy happened to call them. It's the guy who doesn't respond to the email, who's, who's just not paying attention anymore, who's not, who's, you know, has six guys on the injured list on their active roster and are affecting, as you say, the standings because the teams below them in each category are jumping over them just because they're, they're facing off against a zombie in those, in those categories who aren't even trying anymore. Zombie teams is a good way to put it. I, I like that. Uh, getting back to your teams this year, Rob, uh, have you noticed any common themes the ones that, among the teams that you ha- are having good success with? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I have, I have teams that are doing well that went pitcher early, which obviously when, when we talked in the preseason, that was one of the big themes in the preseason is you've got to get those two aces early. You've got to spend 50 bucks on two stud pitchers, and it hasn't worked out for a lot of uh, teams and it'll be interesting going into next season how people adjust. But I have teams, you know, that that uh, that that uh, have Degrom on it. That that as Degrom has come uh, come uh, back to being more Jacob Degrom like in the summer, are doing uh, way better. I've I've teams, I've a bunch of teams with Justin Verlander and Clayton Kershaw on it. They're doing great right uh, now. But I have other teams that that push pitching a little bit that are also. Uh, doing well. So I don't think from a structural perspective, there's one theme that I can say, um, if I did this, I'm doing well. If I did the opposite, I'm doing uh, poorly. It was, in retrospect, a pretty good year to zig when everybody was zagging and uh, wait on starting pitching a little bit, though. I think that, that if, you know, if, you, if you had the crystal ball and knew exactly how the season was going to work out, uh, that is certainly uh, a lesson uh, from this year. One of my more competitive teams is my uh, fantasy baseball invitational team, and I did that. I didn't take a starting pitcher till round four, and then I, I think four, six, seven, something like that. And uh, I mean, this is partially luck because the you know in a in a uh, snake draft format, 
a lot depends on who doesn't get picked ahead of you, and and therefore you end up in my case with Kershaw, Barrios, and Charlie Morton. And and if you if that's who your first three pitchers are going to be, even though you're down the ladder, then you're probably going to do well. And then the question is, how well do you do with your hitters that you that you got ahead of those guys? And in that case, um, maybe not so much. Have you noticed other than injuries? Ha- has there been any common theme among your not successful teams? Uh, yeah, picking Giancarlo Stanton in the first or second round was a really bad move, and it really is hard uh, to. Over, I mean, like it's 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 a cliche, but it's true. You don't win the draft in the first couple of rounds, but you can sure lose it. And uh, it's uh, it's not making excuses. Everybody has injuries, but like in the NFBC Diamond League, I usually go. Uh, anyways, I have a strategy in that league, and I I I I've moved away from the strategy because Giancarlo Stanton was sitting there at the end of the second round, and it was too good uh, to pass up. And boy, I wish I had passed it up because he has been absolutely useless. But he's too good to cut, so it's the double whammy. Like if I just knew from the if I knew on on April fifteenth he was out for the season, it would still have sucked. But then you cut him and you move on and you kind of wrap your head around. Okay, he's never coming back. He's off my team. The problem is he's just still hanging out there, and he's going to be hanging out there on September twenty fifth, and I'm still not going to be getting anything from him. And uh, if you can tell in my voice, there's a little bit of frustration, and I have nothing, nobody to blame but myself. Uh, but but there it is. You know what, I, I would argue with that in the sense that I don't think you can blame yourself because at the time, because you didn't have a crystal ball, and you look at Giancarlo Stanton had, you know, 159 games played a couple of years ago, 156 games played last year. You know, the the, the injury bugaboo seemed to have gone off of Giancarlo Stanton, and we had every reason to believe that he was going to play a reasonable amount of games, and certainly no reason to suspect that the, uh, the injury that he suffered was going to occur. So could this be a case where your process was good, but your outcome just happened to be bad? Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't make it feel any better when I check the standings each morning. No. So yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm being, I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, flippant, obviously, and look at that Yankees lineup and just imagine that Giancarlo Stanton at this point of the year has played 115 games, hitting you know third or fourth in that lineup, even with all the injuries. If he were the one constant, he'd, ha- he'd already have 100 RBIs in that lineup. Um, so yeah, I think the process is good. You can't allow your emotions to, you know, all all of the things, you know, the, the intellectual, rational part of your brain can tell you. But then there's the other part that checks your standings each morning, Patrick, and it's frustrating. It's so frustrating. But yeah, that's part of the game. That's why we play it. Well, as a Jose Ramirez owner in a couple of leagues, I can sympathize because uh, same thing. I thought the process was good. The outcome, but well, not the so summer good. of Jose. So Jose Ramirez has been on fire this summer. He's coming back. It's going to be very interesting going into next year how people evaluate Jose Ramirez because if Jose Ramirez continues doing what he's done, let's say the last thirty days for the next for the next forty games for the rest of the season. Um, you're going to have a full 81 games of peak uh, Jose Ramirez going into next year, and it'll be very interesting how much owners discount his uh, his odious struggles the first half of this year and the last month of last year versus what he does, again, assuming that he continues this uh, the rest of the way uh, the second half of this year. I suspect a lot of people will talk themselves into it based on the stolen base production, even when he was sucking, right? 
Not, not you, you're done with Jose Ramirez? Oh, no, I, I stuck with him through thick and thin because uh, Jose Ramirez, for all of his faults, was providing, like, league elite stolen base production and so I wasn't like I was going to cut him because he wasn't hitting home runs and throw away you know 25 uh, stolen bases at the same time uh, I, th- I think you will be able to make an argument again make uh, uh, assuming he can he finishes the way he has been playing that Jose Ramirez is still a, a first round uh, player next year maybe not top of the first round the way he was this year but I think that uh, in in today's game uh, I think you'll be able to make that argument. I don't know that it's the winning argument, but I think there will be a, a compelling argument that Jose Ramirez will have jumped himself back into the first round uh, with the way he's been playing lately. Certainly into the discussion. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Uh, this is a terrific podcast you're on, Rob, with Van Lee and Jeff Zimmerman. You guys discussed a bunch of newsworthy players the last edition that I heard uh, and I'd like to t- start by talking about Trent Grisham he's a recent call up by Milwaukee he was actually my boon on a national in the National League hitting when I guessed it on Scott Pianowski's Yahoo Fantasy Baseball podcast I know why I liked Trent Grisham but what's your take uh, I think the power is real so it's it's part uh, I part I love the skill set I think that he's uh, uh, a legit uh, a, a legit power bat, and and you can say, well, power bats are are everywhere. There aren't a lot of power bats that come along with the, the plate approach that he has. When you have a, a player that is striking out, um, I wouldn't say not at all, but but striking out not that much at AAA this year. You know, a fourteen percent strikeout rate, but then walking more than he strikes out. Uh, that's an unusual. Uh, profile for a 22-year-old, the power combined with the plate approach, combined with a little bit of speed uh, thrown in. You know, he stole stole 37 bases at A-ball in 2017. I don't expect that uh, to happen again, but you love a guy who has plate approach, power, uh, a bit of speed, and plays in Milwaukee. Like, give me all all of that, and that's a pretty nice uh, package. The only challenge for him is playing time uh, in Milwaukee. There's a lot of mouths uh, to feed. He's not playing every day, but uh, they're still on the cusp of a race, so they're going to play their uh, best players every day, which uh, not every team is doing uh, right now, and I think lots of days he will be uh, in the lineup. So I, I love him long-term, and even for this year in redrafts, I think he's, uh, he's a dynamite player. What about Isan Diaz, uh, the guy who got called up in Miami? Um, he's, so I, 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 if, if you need, um, a, uh, a power jolt right now, um, he's certainly an option. Uh, I think he is, his profile is more similar to what is readily available right now. So I expect him to be, you know, over a course of a 600 plate appearance season, a 25 home run 230 to 235 um, batting average type uh, of line in an atrocious Miami uh, lineup. So that that sounds harsh, um, but middle infield is so deep right now in in mixed leagues. You know, if you're in an if you're in an NL only league, obviously if Diaz is not owned, then uh, anybody who's getting plate appearances uh, needs to be added immediately. I'm talking more 12 to 15 team. Uh, mixed leagues. Is Diaz a top uh, 45 middle, middle infielder rest of season? 
he's he's marginal, I think, uh, there. So it's not that, that I don't like him long-term. I think long-term, that kind of power at second base is interesting. Um, but for this year, he, he's, he's okay. Like, it depends who you have injured and depends who he's replacing for you. This raises an interesting point. You guys had an interesting discussion on the Launch Angle pod about the threshold at which a hitter's power can offset his failings in other categories, especially a batting average or on base. And that certainly appears to be the appearance of Izan Diaz's profile. Lots of power, not so much help on the batting average side. We haven't projected for 200 at Baseball HQ the rest of the way. You say 230. 230 is actually kind of playable in the modern in the modern sort of way baseball is set up. But if he was to hit 250, 15, it becomes a, a, a problem for you. How did you guys figure to balance that power versus uh, batting average conundrum? I mean, ideal, and I, I said 230 because uh, I was worried that Diaz's mom might be listening to the podcast. I didn't want to be mean. I think 200 is just as likely an outcome as, as 230. So, I, so I don't think I don't think your uh, the, the HQ uh, projection is overly pessimistic. I think that may be very close to his 50th percentile outcome. It's it's tough in season to balance these things. In some ways, uh, in mixed leagues, it's a week to week game, right? So. Um, so if Diaz has seven games this week and your other middle infielder has five games, even a lesser Diaz may be a better play for the next seven days in a mixed league than your, your slightly better uh, middle infielder who has five games. And it's important, you know, when people who play fantasy uh, football always think about it that way. All they think about is what is the best lineup I can put forward for this week. In fantasy baseball, we don't typically think that way, in part because in mono leagues, AL and NL only, you can't think of it that way. The pool, player pool just isn't deep enough for you to be um, streaming players in that way. In mixed leagues, you can think of things that way. So Diaz, who I said is a marginal middle infielder, in part, it's, not, it's a mistake to think what's he going to do for the next you know, seven weeks of the season. It's what's he going to do this week, and what is my alternative for this week, and what's the acquisition cost to get Diaz onto my roster just for this week. Um, but, but larger, that's the reason why it's important to do valuations for season long and rest of season, because it's not just batting average versus the home runs, which is the most obvious trade-off. It's also the other counting stats. And that's where it matters where he's hitting in the lineup and the people around him. And that's what worries me a little bit about Diaz in Miami for the rest of the season. And of course, there's an element when you're looking at your own team, if you're running away with it in home runs and struggling in stolen bases, uh, then you've got to be aware of that too. You just don't want to add more home runs for the sake of getting even farther ahead in a category you're already winning or losing or whatever the case might be. Uh, you guys had an interesting talk about Craig Kimbrell. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman said uh, Kimbrell is declining and you said yeah, that's probably right, but that you'd still be buying Kimbrell, especially for next year. Uh, why the interest in Craig Kimbrell if you agree that he's a declining asset? Um, a couple, well, a couple of things. First off, I do think he's declining, and I think that Boston saw, and anybody who watched the playoffs last year saw that uh, he was declining. He wasn't peak Craig Kimbrell in the playoffs last year, and I think Boston saw that he was declining, which was one of the reasons why they didn't have a ton of interest in him this offseason. But... Um, Closers, I think we fall into the trap sometimes of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good enough. And I'd love for all of my closers that I'm interested in to be awesome skills and the role on a good team, but not too good a team, so there's maximum save uh, opportunities. 
But those, there's three of those guys every year, and we don't usually know in March who those guys are going to be because it changes every year, right? Look at Diaz. Look at Blake Trinan. Those were the two consensus in every single draft this year. Those were the two top closers. It was obvious. Why? Because they were the top two closers last year. So, of course, they're going to be the top two closers this year. hasn't quite worked out that way. So, I'm not, so part of it is I think Craig Kimbrell could get it back. So there's nothing about Craig Kimbrell that says that this decline is a straight line down. Two, I think he's good enough to still close when healthy on uh, on any team, uh, never mind a good team. And three, as long as Joe Madden is the manager uh, of the Cubs, he is for all the talk about how eccentric he is and outside the box he is, and you know, an advanced sabermetric savvy that he is. He has shown over his managerial career he likes a lockdown ninth-inning closer. And when he decides who the closer is, you really have to mess up to not be the closer uh, anymore. And Craig Kimbrell will be the closer in Chicago when healthy uh, for the end of this year and for all of next year until he, can't get, until he definitively can't get the job done, which is true of every closer on every team, right? Like if you blow six saves in a row, they're going to put somebody else in there. So all of that put into a box, and because I anticipate that all the smart people that do all the analysis in the forecaster for, for you guys and, and out there uh, on the internet, free and paid, uh, will say all the reasons why Craig Kimbrell is bad uh, this winter, meaning his cost is going to be way lower than it would normally be. I would imagine that I will own a lot of Craig Kimbrell shares next season. I could be wrong, though. Well, we're both up here in Ontario. Let's talk about the... Uh the uh, Blue Jays a little bit. Uh, you weren't real thrilled with the return that Toronto got in trading away Joe Biagini and Aaron Sanchez to Houston. Uh, what did you not like about the players that came back the other way? Well, first off, when Houston Astros, I mean, everybody knows this, when the Houston Astros call and ask for your pitchers, you should hang up and then look at the pitchers they're asking about because they obviously know something that you don't know and why they're asking for them. And put Joe Biagini uh, aside. I like him as a person. He's hilarious. He's quirky. He's like, we need more Joe Biagini's in baseball who are their own personalities in a, in a really positive way. But put him aside. Like, he's, he is ultimately a fungible reliever. And, and Houston just sent him uh, down because they also have a lot of fungible relievers in their bullpen. Aaron Sanchez is the bigger issue, which is I, Aaron, watching Aaron Sanchez pitch this year for Toronto was painful. Like he should not have been a major league starter this year uh, based on how he was pitching in Toronto. And if they had an alternative, he wouldn't have been a major league starter. He was throwing batting practice most, uh, in most games. And we'll see if Houston is able to turn him around. It, you know, obviously, in his first game against Seattle, he looked, uh, he looked great, and they made the most obvious uh, change in the world, which is stop throwing your sinker so much. I'm just skeptical whether they can just improve his four-seam fastball uh, as easy as that. And if it's that easy, then they have a secret sauce that they should bottle up and, and give away. My much bigger criticism, though, of the trade is Derek Fisher. I'm, I am, um, I'd love to be wrong, but I am extraordinarily skeptical that he is anything more than a fourth starter on a mediocre team. Like he's not. He he is the type of guy that you should be able to get relatively free uh, as a major league team. Um, and I don't know that he is an improvement on who the Jays had in their system already. So 
for a guy, Sanchez still has potential, and for them to only have gotten uh, essentially Derek Fisher for him is frustrating. And that was before um, the Blue Jays management tried to sell it, uh, sell it uh, to the fans as this was all about controllable years. It's like, who cares how many controllable years of Derek Fisher you have? Yeah, <laughs> it's like having controllable years of of a you know nineteen ninety eight Toyota Camry. It's all yours. You can keep it as long as you like. But <laughs> banana I just bought at the store can be yours for the next five years. Why am I going to want it in three weeks? Never mind five years. Yeah, exactly right. And one of the things that frustrated me about how it came back. Well, first of all, there's uh, the Aaron Sanchez curveball thing, which already seems to be paying dividends with the change in pitch mix in Houston. But the thing that got me about the about getting back Derek Fisher in the deal was that the Blue Jays gave up Cal Stevenson, who's actually a really good outfield prospect and has, it seems to me anyway, a much higher upside in the long run than than Derek Fisher has and should be exactly the kind of guy that the Blue Jays should have been trying to acquire, never mind give away. And that's what I mean by fungible asset uh, in Fisher, is I'm not convinced, even assume that Steven's upside never comes together, I'm not convinced if you gave both of them 600 plate appearances in the majors right now that they're not just as good, like that they're basically the same player, they're plus or minus a win, let's say, right now, which makes trading for five. I get the desire to have organizational depth. It's one of the things that the current administration in Toronto talked about that was, that was a problem after a lot of trade, uh, trades by Alex Anthopoulos, that there just wasn't much top-level depth in the organization. And there's value at acquiring cheap, controllable depth to a team. But, um, but you don't give up valuable pieces to get that depth. You need to be clever at finding the depth, and I'm not sure they were clever on this trade. You guys didn't get to discuss the Jays waving Freddie Galvis and uh, his being claimed by Cincinnati. That happened after the podcast dropped. But what effects do you think it's going to have on Galvis' value in Cincinnati, first of all? Um, well, it depends how much you assume he was going to play. Like, if you owned him in Toronto, first off, you, you got more value out of him than whatever you would, you know, you probably picked him up on week, in week five off of Fab. So you got more than you thought you were going to get. Um, I think his playing time in Toronto with, you know, with Bo Bichette there now and with, with, with all the guys they want to get playing time was going to decrease to basically nothing as we headed towards September. So you were going to waive Galvis or, 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 you should have been moving on from him uh, anyways. In Cincinnati, him and Jose Iglesias are um, very similar uh, pieces, and I'm not sure. So I, I don't know in terms of shortstop playing time. Um, it depends whether they want a slightly better defensive shortstop in Iglesias or they want a slightly better bat than Galvis, but neither of them separate themselves enough from the other guy where it's, oh, they're obviously going to play him all the time. And I'm not sure that a Josh Van Meter, Freddie Galvis um, platoon at second base with, I assume, Jose Peraza getting squeezed out um, makes a ton of sense. So it's a long way of saying... I think it, it made sense for Cincinnati to pick him up because he was free and he gives them a nice, a nice depth piece that can play
play both middle and field positions adequately. From a fantasy perspective, if you're in an NL-only league, again, you're looking for any plate appearances you can get. In a mixed league, I think you can find much better options right now at middle infield than Gattelvis uh, for the rest of the season. The waiver clearly points to Toronto giving their young players the bid, as you mentioned, Bo Bichette, and uh, of course Guerrero was already locked in, but Biggio is now going to be uh, getting a lot of time in the middle infield as well. Is there any chance they're going to release other guys who are at the end of their contract? And I'm thinking particularly of Justin Smoke, and they've already recalled Rowdy Tellez, which seems to put Justin Smoke out there kind of dangling a bit. Is there any chance he's uh, on his way out as well? I think that if somebody had offered uh, like an A-ball middle reliever at the trade deadline, they would have traded Justin Smoke. The problem is there just aren't that many teams in contention who need a first-base DH bat right now. So I think that... I, I I like Justin Smoke. Um, this 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 is way meaner uh, and um, is is unfair to Justin Smoke. I'm not sure a team claims him if he goes on waivers right now. Um, so, I but if you own Justin Smoke in a mixed league right now, Rowdy Telez is going to be getting my guess is 80, 75 to eighty percent of the plate appearances at first base the rest of the season. So you need to be looking at better options than Justin Smoke. There were a lot of people who looked at Justin Smoke's metrics kind of going into the All-Star break and said, wow, there's a power surge coming uh, there. And the, all the analysis that, that the folks who wrote those uh, columns did were bang on from a skills perspective. So it was good analysis, good process. Uh, I don't know that he's going to get more than uh, 70, at 70 plate appearances the rest of the way so you need more than that from your, your corner infield or your utility spot. And I should just caution that anybody who's looking at Rowdy Tellez and thinking, oh, this is, this is something that has a lot of possibility, he may hit some home runs, but he was really struggling before he got sent down. Uh, I, he, I think Jay's management wants to give him one more shot to figure out going into the winter whether he is uh, on the opening day lineup or not. Like if, and my guess is they, they see what everybody else sees, but he's still young enough that, that maybe, maybe he turns it on. But I think they want to have given him a full shot so that they can go into the winter knowing we need a first baseman uh, this winter. Tellez was raking in AAA right before his yep. call-up, so there's you know a bit of a positive side there. But he was a pretty effective AAA hitter before that, and it certainly didn't translate. I, I, would, I would say about Tellez, like f- from a fantasy perspective, be open-minded. If, if, if you... If he starts getting plate appearances and is hitting the you know the the, the snot out of the ball, um, be open minded to picking him up. But I wouldn't make him a priority in a, in a waiver process yet. I was the guest on another podcast recently, and they asked me which of Anthony Bass, Corey Gearn, and Sam Tuivailala to take in the uh, Seattle bullpen, and I basically said, D, none of the above, because I think they're all shaky or risky, and there probably aren't going to be that many saves in Seattle anyway. Where would you look in Seattle for bullpen help, or would you? Yeah, and I, I think your answer is probably the right answer, uh, in part because um, my, 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 I've done some analysis, and you need to win games in order to get saves, and Seattle has, has since the first month of the season, have been, uh, uh, you know, Baltimore-Detroit level bad. Um, so I, I guess I'd pick Bass, 
out of that option because I, I, I get every league is different, every team context is different, and if you're a team that literally needs every save you can possibly find because that's the only place you can make up points, me telling you you should just not take any Seattle closer is, is not helpful and is, is, is lazy even if it's the right actual answer. Like I think your answer again is right. I'm not saying you're lazy or, uh, or, or the answer is lazy. It's that, that I get there are some situations where saying you shouldn't take any of these closers is not the right answer. If, if gun to my head, I think I would take bass of those. But you need to understand in most contexts that the opportunity cost of every uh, pitching slot, active pitching slot, is a real thing. So when you put Anthony Bass into your lineup for the week and he gives up you know, three runs in two innings with no wins and no saves, you've lost money on that pitching slot uh, that week. Not just because he was bad. Even if he pitched two innings with, with one strikeout and no runs, you've probably lost money on that slot because of the opportunity cost of who you could have had in that slot alternatively. So again, if you need saves and that's all you need, then I get it. But you probably most weeks should be able to do a little bit better than than any of those Seattle relievers. Staying with closers in Atlanta, the situation is something of a mess, Rob. All three of their newly acquired relievers, Shane Green, Mark Melanson, and Chris Martin, flopped in their first few appearances. Uh, Green actually lost the role, and Melanson appears to have lost the role. Luke Jackson seems to be actually finding his way back into the mix, which sounds impossible considering how he, how he was pitching before the trading deadline. How do you see the Atlanta closer situation falling out over the balance of the year? It, it, well, first off, I, I don't know. I don't know that Alex Anthopoulos knows. I don't know if the Atlanta manager knows. I think they're hoping to get through tomorrow's game, like tonight's game, tomorrow's game, and the next game. And if they can do that, they'll figure it out the next day again. Um, I think Luke Jack, poor Luke Jackson, like he's such a nice story. He seems like such a nice young uh, man. And everybody has it in their mind that Luke Jackson was an absolute disaster uh, as closer for Atlanta. Um, Luke Jackson has a 12K per nine rate. Like Luke Jackson um, was ridiculously um, good for a stretch this year as closer. And there's no doubt he's a, he had a, a, a few games where uh, he was not good. As almost every closer uh, uh, has. So I think Luke Jackson is plenty good enough to be a major league uh, closer. I think there are lots of reasons to think from just a pure skill perspective that Luke Jackson is a better pitcher uh, than Melanson or, or Green actually are. Um, but we're at the point of the season where it doesn't matter who I think the better pitcher is. Like, you can do that in February, March when you're drafting. I'm going to draft skills. I'm not drafting roles. There just isn't enough time for that in the season. So it's see who gets the next save, chase that, and if you think that guy won't hold it, then take the guy you think will be next. But um, uh, it will not shock me if Luke Jackson ends up with the job, job, which I know people listening to this right now are yelling at their their device that they're listening to it on, saying, Rob, you're crazy. Luke Jackson's awful. All I'm saying is I don't think he was as awful as people think he was. Can't argue with 12 strikeouts per nine, that's for sure. Uh, Aristides Aquino hit the big leagues with a splash, seven home runs in his first 10 games. And when I saw uh, on his line, it said slugging, uh, 1161. And I thought, well, they must have 
put in some kind of typo. That's his OPS. No, that was his slugging. Uh, the question is whether, of course, the o- offense is sustainable, of course, not at that level, but at a really playable level, given his extremely high strikeout rate. What's your take on Aristides Aquino? So you're taking the your, your your hot take is he would not hit 135 home runs over a 162 game season. You don't you don't you don't think that ha- uh, happens? Uh, <laughs> I'm betting against it. Yeah, no, no. Look, you got to you got to take these kinds of stands on the podcast. Uh, I uh, before he came up, I thought he was again a really interesting power prospect, and I thought his. Um, that that was available in every league because obviously nobody stashed uh, stashed him uh, before the season. So there's no chance that uh, this is who he is. Obviously, uh, that's uh, he he will. Uh, it's not it's not even regress. It it will he will he will come back to earth. Uh, he, I I don't think a sixty percent home run per fly ball rate is sustainable. Um, but he had a 30% home run per fly ball in AAA, and he may be one of those guys that that, that the happy fun ball, as my podcast colleague Jeff Zimmerman has has uh, has has named it, um, will really help. And I think he is um, legit enough that there is no league that he shouldn't be owned in. And he is one of those guys that we will be talking on this podcast, on every podcast this winter. So what do you do about him? My God, where do you draft him? But for the rest of the season, if you're in a league that for whatever reason he isn't owned in yet, uh, unless you are you know, 20 home runs ahead of everybody else, uh, you, need to, you need to own him uh, in every league because uh, I think he's legit enough that um, he's better than whoever your worst outfielder is, almost certainly. And finally, you said you like Aaron Savali of Cleveland more than some other alternatives in the free agent pitcher pool at the time you were speaking, and certainly more than a lot of analysts like him because of kind of soft skills. What's your what's the appeal of Aaron Savali for you? Uh, it's it's almost as if uh, Cleveland has this factory where they produce these. Uh, pitchers, number one, who are not highly touted, uh, so it's not like, I, I know he didn't come from nowhere, but it's not like uh, he was near the top of any prospect list, at least that I know of. I could be, people again, people may be yelling right now saying, of course, he was my top uh, pitching prospect this year. I don't think he was. I think you're not telling the truth if you say that. Um, so you look at his fastball, and his fastball doesn't break 93 miles an hour. So it's not that he's a soft tosser, but in this game, uh, in this in day and age, if you can't break 93 with your fastball, you are a soft tosser. Uh, doesn't emphasize the fastball. Like so far, again, he hasn't pitched that many games in the majors, but his four-seam fastball, he's only thrown 17 of them, period, full stop. He throws a sinker. Um, but only a third of the time. And then he has this cutter and change-up and slider that you look at and you're like, this should not be uh, enough to make it work. Uh, you know, a, a mediocre at best fastball and, and a bunch of junky pitches, like I love the cutter, but uh, uh, it shouldn't work. 30% of the time the cutter, and yet it's working. And he's missing enough bats. You know, the change-up so far is 23% swinging strike rate. The cutter... Is, is a great pitch so far based on what we've seen. So I, I don't want to overstate uh, it. This makes it sound like I am, you know, go all in, in your keeper league, trade whatever it takes to get Savali. It's not that at all. We were talking a long list of, like, uh, Kashner and, like, really bad streaming pitching options. 
that it's it's the kind of thing where if they're playing Detroit in a big ballpark, yeah, you can start anybody, but this is literally you're just talking about anybody. Or at the time of year where if you need wins, you start anybody. Uh, Savali is a little bit better than that. Is much better than that. I can easily see Savali uh, being a plus-plus pitcher uh, for the rest of the year in that rotation. Of course, the risk is, as Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco come back, does he have a job the rest of the season? But but you deal with that when that actually happens. I think he's worth picking up if he's available in a ten-team mixed league. Even like I'd I'd be I'd use Savali in, in decent matchups in in even shallow mixed leagues. Chances are there'll be a few decent matchups too in the American League Central. It's a lot of people, uh, analysts will tell you, aim for those uh, Minnesota Cleveland pitchers because they get a lot of shots at Kansas City and Detroit and even the White Sox. So, Rob, this has been great. Uh, Going to move over to the National American League news segments with Nick and Jock. Uh, why don't you take a break, uh, hydrate, ice your arm, and come back in a few minutes for part two? Sounds good. Rob Silver writes for Baseball Prospectus and appears regularly on the Launch Angle podcast. And he'll be back a little later in our show. Coming up, though, it's our Market Watch News Reports, player news from the National League and the American League with Nick and Jock, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach too? Yes. Do you know the fellow's well, name? I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing who first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman. Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's wife? Yes. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off it's the National League Report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Atlanta, where they have quite a, a confusing situation, to say the least, going on in their bullpen. Apparently, the manager there has declared that Mark Melanson is the new closer, but we know from experience that anybody who starts off being the new closer in, uh, in Atlanta sometimes isn't the new closer for very long. And then there's another new closer. Melanson had a second bad outing on Wednesday, uh, four hits, two earned runs, only got two outs. He had to be bailed out by the veteran Jerry Blevins, of all people. Uh, the Braves currently have four relievers with 100 or higher base performance values. That's all. That's very good. They have Melanson, Shane Green, Luke Jackson, and Chris Martin, whom they acquired by trade, and none of them is being consistent. So what's going to happen, Nick, in this Atlanta bullpen, and especially with the closer role? Well, if the, you know, it really is a mess because they've got four really good arms at this point, but none of them are giving them consistent performance. If the if the decision sticks, the Melanson's fantasy value takes a quantum leap. And, of course, he served as a closer of four teams before suffering an assortment of pitching injuries. So he has the experience. He's been enjoying a, enjoying a renaissance this season. XERA 3.43, BPV 115. Those numbers would be even better if you exclude the first outing since being anointed closer. That outing on August 10th featured him giving up four hits and four in runs and retired only one batter. Um, 
But the Braves did not show much patience when it comes to their closers. So who knows what's going to happen after the bad ad. And on Wednesday night, there may be someone else out there the next time there's a save situation. Uh, it's really hard to tell. It's certainly a situation to keep an eye on because uh, the way the Braves are playing, there are going to be plenty of save situations between here and the end of the season. And whoever is in that role is going to have some real fantasy value. I saw that Phil Hertz covered the story for Playing Time Today at Baseball HQ and made the point about the one bad outing. And I actually wrote a, a Master Notes column a few weeks ago about, you know, if you look at a starting pitcher and you take out his one bad outing, then you get a much different view of his actual skills. I don't know if you can if you have that luxury when you're talking about relief pitchers because one bad outing can can really sink an entire season almost, you know, because you, you're talking about such a low number of innings in the denominator of the ERA numbers and the whip numbers and, and those kinds of things. And on top of that, of course, as we mentioned, uh, Melanson followed up his first bad outing with another bad outing. So it's not like this is, uh, you know, one of those things that just happens once and you can forget about it. He seems to be making a little bit of a habit out of it. I don't know. You know what, Nick, when I look at this, I get the feeling they don't know what to do. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it really is a, a difficult situation. The the numbers say that Melanson is probably the best closer they've got at the moment. Uh, he's had three clean appearances since the 1st of August and is the only one to have that many. Uh, Shane Green has only one. Luke Jackson only two. Uh, it, it's just, if, if I were a manager, I think I'd be very confused because uh, you get a guy who looks like he's throwing well when you put him in in the 8th inning, then you put him in in the ninth inning, and everything goes to pieces. So, uh I think they're just going to have to find the hot hand and try to go with it. But uh, I would not want to be in the manager's shoes at this point. And it's easier said than done, isn't it? You say, find the hot hand and go with it, but none of them has a hot hand that stays hot. They're they're all running really hot and cold at this time. And uh, I'm very confused as a Shane Green owner about what happened when he went from Detroit to Atlanta. There's not a huge park factor disadvantage. He hasn't been really that troubled with... uh, the the park it seems but you know there's a there's a a guy at the athletic uh, al melkier he i think he used to write for baseball hq if i'm not mistaken and he's been doing this work that talks about the sort of humidity of the air and the temperatures and so forth and how they affect the ball flight which includes how sharply breaking balls break and how much horizontal and vertical movement and that kind of thing i wonder if maybe shane green went from a sort of ideal situation for the way he throws his pitches to a less than ideal situation and and maybe the same is true of these other guys as well it may be i think you're very right certainly certainly especially recently the humidity in atlanta has been very different than it would be in detroit uh and so that can make a huge difference certainly in the way in which the uh uh, for a home as a home park in the way in which the ball travels to give you some idea of the muddle that's going on now, l- listen to this. Baseball HQ lists Melanson as the closer with 55% of the remaining saves. Then we've got uh, Baseball Reference says Jackson is the closer. That's who they have listed. And Closer Monkey, which is a closer-related site, says it's a committee with Melanson first, Jackson second, Green third. Green, Green doesn't have a save since he got traded. Two blown saves, one lost in a separate game, and a hold. Uh, that's... Since June 29th, I think he hasn't recorded a save. And since moving there, 11.81 ERA, 2.81 whip. How about that? 
that's partly due to a 58% hit rate, which we would expect to come down, but a 1305 OPS against. Uh, boy, I don't know. Like I said, uh, I don't know what they're going to do in Atlanta, but they better do something because they're coming up to the playoffs and they need to be able to figure out what they're going to do in late innings. Uh, meanwhile, how about the New York? Very definitely. To, you know, to add to those numbers you were giving, you were, you, the, uh, the, only, the only guy who's got a decent strand rate has been Luke Jackson since the 1st of August. Uh, 100% strand rate, but we know that's not going to last. But Jackson's XERA since the first part of August, 5.21, and an August BPV of only 55. So it's it's just a, a very difficult situation uh, for the Braves. Meanwhile, Nick, uh, in New York, the Mets have a bullpen situation. Apparently, the story is they could be giving more save opportunities to Seth Lugo. Alain de Leonardis had the goods on the National League East this week in playing time tomorrow. What's the bullpen situation in New York? Well, no part of the team has improved uh, more than the bullpen. Mets relievers ranked 28th with a 5.63 ERA in the first half, improved to a 3.46 ERA uh, in 88.1 second half innings. That's good for sixth best. The tip of that spear has been Seth Lugo, who's posted one win, two saves, 0.61 ERA, 1.72 FIP, zero walks, 19 strikeouts in 14.2 innings since the All-Star break. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the, the, uh, erstwhile closer, uber closer, Edwin Diaz is, uh, had a nightmarish first season in New York, and that's continued. Seven earned runs, six walks, 17 strikeouts in 10.2 innings pitched. So, you know, you have to wonder what does the playing time picture look like for these two as we head into the final weeks of the season. There are only seven weeks left in the regular season, so we're really getting down to the nitty gritty, and we don't have to read too many tea leaves to get an answer. Manager Mickey Callaway has indicated he'll continue to go with Lugo in high leverage situations, including for multi-inning saves as the need dictates. And without naming Lugo the new closer and stripping Diaz of his rank, Callaway has essentially opened the door to something of a co-closer situation. As far as strict playing time goes, both men will pitch, both will get saves. Callaway has said that Diaz will continue to get big outs for us and pitch in big games, and we still have faith in Edwin. But we could reasonably assume that in a particularly tight game, say a one-run lead, Lugo may be the preferred option as early as the eighth inning and would be allowed to finish the six-out save chance. Uh, Diaz will probably be used on days Lugo is unavailable or to get three outs in games with larger leads. If you're chasing saves, we project Diaz for eight saves, Lugo for four, uh, lining up with the logic set by the Mets, uh, the Mets manager. Yeah, it's a, it's a mess of a situation. And of course, right after all of this happened and the story came out of Baseball HQ and other sources about Lugo, uh, Wednesday night he goes out and gives up five runs in a third of an inning against the Braves, coincidentally. So it was a bullpen nightmare all the way around. And he was called in for a high leverage chance in the seventh. So it, it appears that Callaway might be serious about mixing and matching, but it also appears that Lugo might not be, uh, you know, all that... Uh, the earlier story said with those tremendous numbers. And let's not forget about Justin Wilson, Nick. He has two wins and two holds, and he's been in some medium-high leverage work over the last 10 games or so, an ERA around 250 in that span. Boy, oh boy, this is not quite the same as Atlanta, which is a total muddle, but it really is getting hard to say where the next saves will be coming from. Yeah, it really is, and it's one of those situations where, you know, the two are fighting for each other for playoff spots, and uh, uh, and both not getting the kind of closeouts of games that they wish. They're probably both praying they had someone like Dennis Eckersley to, uh, they could just step in and, and then go to sleep while the ninth inning, inning uh, ended up. But it's not that way. Things are exciting. 
In Arizona, they placed the left-handed starter Robbie Ray on the 10-day injured list on Thursday. He's got some lower back spasms. Uh, Rob Carroll covered the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. So what's going to happen in the Arizona rotation with their post-Zach Greinke ace out of the lineup? Pitching against Colorado on Wednesday, Ray felt tightness while pitching in the second inning and again while warming up for the third, and he called for reinforcements. And similar tightness, we should say, also truncated his August 3rd outing after five innings. Uh, unofficial elevated to the front of the rotation after the Granke trade hasn't pitched particularly well in August. His, his dom is down, his control is up, uh, and it's certainly reasonable to assume that the back issues have impacted his August performance. An MRI has been ordered. It's not known yet how long he will be sidelined. Uh, right-handed pitcher John Duplantier has been uh, summoned from AAA and should get another shot at the Arizona rotation. He has injury and durability issues of his own. Between Arizona and AAA this season, made 16 starts, pitched only 49 innings in those 16 starts, an average of just over three innings per start. We also had a bit of news out of Arizona as they were shuffling their roster about the recall of a pretty interesting young hitter who could be a potential stolen base source and maybe sneaky power. Yeah, Arizona reassigned outfielder Tim LaCostro to AAA. He had 11 stolen bases, uh, second among the Diamondbacks, but his uh, 704 OPS was the lowest among all the Diamondbacks hitters. So his departure helps clear the path for rookie outfielder Josh Rojas. Rojas is one of the players Arizona received in the Zach Granke trade, and now the Diamondbacks have called up someone who looks like an ideal utility hitter. Uh, he's an ultra-versatile guy who's played first base, second base, third base, shortstop, left field, right field this season in the minors. Uh, could qualify at a lot of spots for you, depending upon your qualification rules. Uh, 6'1", 195-pounder, uh, actually hitting better than a utility hitter. A 322, 405, 561 line in the Astros organization. Uh, then hit so well in the Arizona Miners at AAA, a 514 average, three homers, 14 RBIs, 943 OPS. Uh, some of that can be attributed to his environment at a very hitter-friendly uh, PCL, but they pretty much had to give him a shot. Uh, had an identical uh, 0.83 walks per strikeout eye ratio in both AAA parks. Uh, no matter how well he was hitting, he kept his good eye at the plate. That 370 career on-base percentage will serve him well in the majors, and in just 14 big league at-bats has one walk and one strikeout. Uh, 23 combined home runs in AAA, uh, but speed is more his game. 71 stolen bases over the last two seasons across several levers in the minors, and considering his plate discipline, he could be a very useful uh, source for, for uh, swipes down the stretch. With Briggs, Weihard, and now LaCostro sent down, Roas has a chance to stick if he gets off to a good start, and he's responded very well since being called up. He's gone 4 for 13, 300, it's a 308 batting average, a double, a walk, uh, tried only one stolen base, and was caught. Uh, but certainly someone to, to look at on your waiver wire. Yeah, when he shows up on your wave of wires, right, I think this is somebody we really need to be taking a very close look at. Uh, in St. Louis, the outfielder Jose Martinez, who was not having a terrific year anyway, uh, Nick, was placed on the 10-day IL. He's got a sprain in his shoulder joint, his right, uh, his right shoulders hurt. Uh, the club recalled outfielder Randy Arozarena from AAA and optioned to catch her to AAA as well. Phil Hertz covered this one for playing time today. Let's start with this. How long will Jose Martinez be out of the lineup? Well, it's not clear how long he'll be out. A movement he gets back, uh, his value and owners will be in doubt for a couple of reasons. First of all, his defense as a liability, as it, as it always has been, and uh, leaves the Cardinals to look for alternatives to give him extensive playing time. He frequently doesn't make it all the way through the game because they trade him out for defensive purposes and, and that sort of thing. And second, and perhaps more important, aside from a hot streak in May, 
His performance has really been very mundane, even including the hot streak. His XBA is only 259. Uh, PX is a subpar 73. Well, how about this uh, Randy Arozarena? He was discussed very positively in Tuesday's Daily Call-Ups report at BaseballHQ.com. And I guess the big question is, yeah, he's got skills and yeah, he might be able to hit. But the key question for fantasy owners is how much playing time is he going to get in St. Louis? As Jose Martinez goes on the IL, they brought up uh, perhaps a piece of their future in this 24-year-old Cuban outfielder, Randy Arozarena. He's 5'11", 170 pounds, uh, so not a big guy. Um been climbing levels since he began became part of the Cardinals organization in 2017. He seems to be one of those batters who reaches the next level and struggles at that level and then repeats it the next year and then he crushes it. Uh, and he did just that in double A, then again in triple A, uh, and this seems to be one of his crushes at seasons. Uh, Major League Ball or not, Rodriguez did in Memphis this season is very impressive. He has a well-rounded skill set where nothing is truly plus and nothing is truly below average, though. Has some growing power, although a bit more weight would certainly help. Uh, ISO around or over 200 for the third season in a row. Has some speed. 16 to 26 steals the past three years. A 0.51 batting eye, very solid, even if he is a bit aggressive at the plate at times. Good defender in left field, plus arm, and his speed. There's really nothing left for him to prove at AAA after two years at Memphis. And now the Cardinals want to see if he can adjust to Major League Baseball this year. And maybe, just maybe, start putting up what looks like a 15 stolen base, 20 home run type season for them as soon as next year. Yeah, this is an interesting case. This Aruzarena guy, uh, of course, the jump from AAA to the major leagues is by far the most difficult jump in the progression of a prospect. But I think he could be pretty interesting this year. And one of the things you said there really caught my ear, which was he's good with the leather. He can play defensively, and that gives him, I think, a leg up. Even when Martinez comes back, they may look around and go, you know what, first of all, he wasn't hitting that well. But second of all, it matters when you're trying to make the playoffs. you got to get outs when those balls are hit into the outfield, and, and uh, Jose Martinez wasn't doing that as well as this Rosarena kid appears to be able to do. So that's one big factor in his favor. And if he happens to start hitting while Martinez is on the IL, I can see Rosarena completely supplanting Jose Martinez in St. Louis. Yeah, I can see that too. You know, the other advantage Rosarena has is the stolen bases, which, uh, which is not, not something Martinez brings to the table. Certainly a big benefit as far as uh, his fantasy value. And, of course, if you're in a dynasty league or some kind of keeper format where you might be able to land this Rosarena kid uh, for a low price in fab and then keep him next year, boy, oh, boy, then now you're really talking about something good. Nick, uh, thanks a million for helping us out. Talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat low these many years here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis. It's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Doing fine. Uh, let's start in Boston, Jock. Uh, rookie Michael Chavis was having a terrific year, had 18 homers in about 350 at-bats. So in a full season, that would be mid-20s, uh, 254 batting average. He was having a terrific year, and he was really filling in nicely for Boston. But he's on the IL now. He's got an AC sprain in his left shoulder. He'll be out for a while. Matt Dodge covering the story for playing time today. Jock, what are the ramifications in Boston? Yeah, I was looking at Chavez's work this year for the first time. I'm not an owner, and I and I knew he'd started off well. He he'd actually slipped just a little bit in the second half, but still, like you pointed out, uh, 
18 homers from a rookie, 350 at bats, a rookie second baseman. That's not bad. Um, that's not bad at all. Um, but uh, now the Red Sox, they don't have a great system, and they've they've called up uh, um, Chris Owings to take his, his roster spot. And I, I don't know why they even called him up. I, I, to me, I'm looking at the lineups here, and it seems like second base is going to come down to, to Brock Holt and uh, uh Marco Hernandez, who they just called uh, Brock Holt, has some pretty good numbers, pretty good metrics uh, underneath a uh, uh, a three twenty eight uh, batting average against righties. Uh, he's been pretty bad against lefties. Uh, two eleven. Hernandez is twenty five for seventy five at the major league level. So this is going to be a tough call. I've looked at the last week, and it looks like uh, Boston has split the playing time between uh, all three of these guys, mostly Hernandez and um, and Brock Holt. So um, um, if you're going to make it, if you're if you're looking for playing time and production uh, in in Chavez's absence, I think Holt and uh, Hernandez are the way to go. Well, certainly not Chris Owings. Uh, last time I checked, his OPS was barely at 400, and that's OPS. That's not slugging or on base. That's both combined. Uh, I don't think Chris Owings is a is a, a legitimate option at all. And I'm curious about Marco Hernandez more than I am about Brock Holt. I think uh, sometimes you want to play for upside. Sometimes you want to play for ceiling. Sometimes for floor. You know, I, I don't know. This is a tough one to call because none of them is going to be earth shaking. Yeah, that's right, and uh, and I like I said, I don't even know why they called up Owings, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes down as the back end of a pitching shuttle uh, uh, pretty shortly. Also earlier this week in Tampa, Avasail Garcia had been having a twenty-ish dollar season with seventeen homers and nine big stolen bases. Uh, a surprising source of speed, Avasail Garcia. He was on his way to at least a twenty ten season, maybe even twenty five twelve something like that, and a batting average in the 270 280 range which is really good in this environment now he's on the il he has an oblique strain baseball hq injury analysis says two to four weeks on the shelf uh, this is matt dodge again what's the outlook for Avsail garcia and who benefits in tampa yeah oblique strains are, are are pretty tough injuries to call this could be quick it could be uh, it could take a while uh, garcia spent most of the year in the outfield in a corner spot also some time at dh and like you've said it's been a productive season so not a small loss for a club still in the postseason hunt but the rays are deep in corner outfielders who've been sharing time there in the dh spot and occasionally the injured list for most of the season so Tommy Pham and Austin Meadows will handle the corners just fine. Uh, and, and Tampa Bay recently acquired Jesus Aguilar from Milwaukee. He's begun to heat up since coming back to the AL. He's going to share some first base DH time with Travis Darnot and G-Man Choi. So the Rays still have plenty of bodies to plug in here. I was looking at the uh, depth chart at BaseballHQ.com where they forecast the playing time. And uh, I have to say the outfield looks pretty covered with Pham and Kiermaier in center and uh and uh, left field, not respectively. But they've also got a couple of other guys. I'm curious what your take is, Guillermo Heredia. And uh, are you at all concerned about Austin Meadows' health? Um, yeah, I mean, anytime a guy who spends as much time on the IL as Austin Meadows does, you've got to be concerned about his health. And, and Heredia has been getting a lot of playing time. Uh, Kevin Kiermaier must still be banged up a little bit. Uh, I don't understand playing Heredia at all. I mean, if you're looking at his batting average, uh, he's never been much of a hitter. 225. He he doesn't hit right-handed hitters well at all. He, it's his history has been pretty good against lefties. I don't know what he's doing this year, but uh, I'm looking at that uh, 225 BA and 
and 653 OPS and uh, Haredi is in there for his glove right now. So um, at center field is kind of interesting. I think they're hoping uh, Kiermaier can, can, can regain some of that help. The other thing about the Tampa death chart that looks interesting to me is that they've got eight and nine, if you count Yandy Diaz, guys splitting time at DH. So they're certainly, uh, the the Baseball HQ team analysts believe that uh, Tampa Bay is going to certainly be willing to give lots of guys a rotation through that DH slot. Yeah, they've always rotated a lot of guys all year long through the DH spot. A lot has, a lot has depended on injuries, too. Uh, Yandy Diaz spent a lot of time there. He may be out for the year now. We only have him down at 5% uh, right. um, playing time. He had a setback in um, in his uh, uh, in his rehab, and he's he's right now he's on the DL with a fracture in his left foot, so he he may not come back. Yeah, and the other guy, like I said, I'm worried about. I think is Austin Meadows. He just doesn't look right to me. Uh, we've got him down for 85 percent of the remaining plate appearances when you divide them up, uh, mostly in the outfield, but also a good chunk at DH. I don't know. Uh, Austin Meadows scares me a little bit, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the guys you've mentioned are going to pick up even more. Uh, extra playing time because I'm I'm just not 100% on Austin Meadows right now. We haven't talked much about Detroit this year, Jock, mainly because there's nothing to talk about. They've been pretty awful, and the players on the team haven't provided much fantasy value, and with Castellanos now out of the league, it's even worse. But there has been maybe a minor exception to this in Jacoby Jones, who had won most of the center field at bats, and he had a 15-homer, 10-stolen-base type season shaping up, a 2015 full-season pace going on, but he's out for the year now. He broke his wrist. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Tigers for playing time today. Let's talk about Jacoby Jones and what happens in Detroit's outfield situation. Yeah, Jones had been better than I thought he'd be this year. I mean, I've never been a big fan of his. His his tools had always seemed pretty faint. He's got the power, speed, and defense. And uh, I know a lot of HQers uh, thought he'd be better than he has been. And, and this year, he, he has been. Uh, I mean, his 235 batting average in 298 at-bats is the best of his major league career. 740 OPS isn't bad. And uh, and his contact rate has uh, has is slowly rising. It's now just below 70%. Uh, um, it, again, all of this is better than anything he's put up at the major league level. And his metrics look a little bit healthier uh, uh, but uh, longer term, uh, still not a big fan. He's 27 years old already. I don't think there's a lot of upside there. Now with him gone, uh, it looks even bleaker. They've, they've started three different players in center field the last uh, week, including Victor Reyes, Harold Castro, and utility Nico Goodrum, um, none of whom have been awful at the major league level, but, but none really jump out either. So if you're looking for playing time, tough to make a call. Uh, Goodrum plays all over the field. He has some fantasy value just in his counting stats. He's put up a 249 batting average with 11 homers and 12 stolen bases. Probably the best of the group, just, just there's nothing real special here. Yeah, I'm going to echo exactly what you said. I think Goodrum is the obvious play here, especially if he's uh, going to get the added playing time that we expect. He's up to 90% of the remaining plate appearances for one of those nine slots in Detroit, which means he's going to be able to add to that 11 home run total and that 12 stolen base total. If he can keep his batting average around 250, which is where it is now, I mean, he's not really helping, but he's not really hurting either, which was the knock on him, I think, in past years. The, the batting average was something of a sink. Uh, but that was in in days when batting averages were higher. So he's maintained that 245, 250 range while the league has gradually sunk back towards it. 
Yeah, you know, and, and I'm looking at his real brief history here. I, I was a little more optimistic about him last year. Uh, he actually hit 16 homers and 444 at-bats, uh, and uh, I, I thought power-wise it, it looked like his metrics looked like they could improve a little bit on that number, and, and now in the year of the home run you would expect that, that he might, but he hasn't, and his power metrics have drifted just a little bit. Uh, uh, so uh, another 27-year-old who could just doesn't seem to have a lot of growth left. Well, we're about a quarter of the way from the end, so if we kind of prorate his 11 home runs so far, he's going to be close to that 15-16 range he was in last year, I think, and he's ahead of pace. He's got the same 12 stolen bases this year in fewer at-bats as he had last year, so I think there's some possibility for some counting stats here, but again, of all of the guys you mentioned, I don't think any of them is offers anything truly special, as you said. Uh, let's move on, Jock, because I want to talk to you about your recent uh, Playing Time Tomorrow column. You cover the American League West, and I thought this was just a terrific column. Just great analysis, really sharp and on point. And what I really like about how you do it, before we talk about any uh, particular guys, is... Your philosophy seems to be, I'm not going to tell people how to respond to this. I'm just going to give them the news uh, and point out some things and let them decide for themselves, which is kind of the HQ way. Yeah, I I don't honestly believe in predicting what's necessarily going to happen. If I'm high on a player, it'll come through in, in, in my columns. But on the other hand, you're still trying to guess what a front office is going to do and even what a player is going to do. Uh, and we're going to talk about Nomar Mazzara in a minute because, uh, you know, there's still some pros there and there's a whole bunch of cons now after now in his fourth full year of, uh, of, of major league, uh, facing major league pitchers. So um, let's talk about him for a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I was interested that you said you thought there was a pretty good chance that Texas could cut Nomar Mazar's playing time because, in your words, he's just plodding along. But I w- asked myself when I saw it, how likely is it that Mazara, who's a pretty reliable low to mid-teens dollar guy and a pretty much a sure thing 20 home run guy, three straight years with exactly 20, he could find himself on the outs in Texas? And if so, what would the Rangers be thinking and how will they replace him? Yeah, that's really interesting because selling low on a player like Mazzara is a really tough thing to do. I mean, the guy is still, what, he, he turns 25 this offseason. Um, and like I said in the column, a 769 OPS isn't terrible. And and a few of those metrics, the, the 121 uh, hard contact index, that'll be a career best if it holds. But beyond that, um, this guy was supposed to be a star, and he's only hitting 203 against lefties. He's that's regressed from a, a 228 batting average, um, career-wise. This looks like a platoon player at best right now. So how much rope do you give him, and and do you sell him low? Um, if I'm a fantasy player in a keeper league, unless I can get uh, the price that I want, I, I'm still holding on to Mazzara uh, at, at, at this particular age and, and hoping that uh, that the at-bats that he's already started to lose in Texas might let a fire under him somehow. Yeah, I thought so too. When I thought about Nomar Mazzara, I thought, well, he's actually ahead of his 17-homer uh, pace. We've got him on track for 22 or 23 at BaseballHQ.com, sort of around 80 runs, 80 RBIs. That's not bad. He's got four stolen bases so far, so you know he's no uh, Ricky Henderson out there, but five stolen bases, counting his projection, isn't nothing either. I... I suspect that, if anything, if you thought Nomar Mazara's playing time was about to be cut, I think I'd go to anybody in my league uh, on a trading basis, and I would try to sell him high. I'd, I'd say, look at him. He's ahead of schedule. Batting average isn't killing anybody. 
maybe this is a time to sell Nomar Mazara, not low, but high. Yeah, this is definitely a glass last full, uh, glass half full, half empty situation. Uh, if you're the Rangers, you're, you'd be selling them low right now. But but they've got guys like Willie Calhoun and Danny Santana who offensively have have been at least a little more exciting than uh, than Nomar Mazara has this year. Danny Santana's been a revelation. He's hitting the ball hard all over the place now. There's some regression in those stats too, uh, given his plate skills. But um, still, both of those names look like they're part of the, the Ranger future, and they're both in the outfield. So what do they do with, uh, with Nomar Mazar, particularly if you're a club that needs pitching? Yeah, I think they're going to have to look around. They've also got Joey Gallo probably going to come back in September, and that's going to further dilute the amount of available outfield playing time unless they just decide that they're so far out of it that maybe they just want to make sure Joey Gallo's 100%. I think he has a wrist injury, and they don't want to mess around with that, I, I suspect. Having said all we've said, Jock, do you think that Mazzara, you mentioned he's only 25, and usually if we have a guy who got into the big leagues 21, 22 years old, has succeeded, he hasn't been great, and he hasn't grown a lot, but is there sort of in the back of your mind this possibility that maybe Nomar Mazzara has room to improve if he fixes a couple of things and that there's you know a non-zero chance that that could happen? Yeah, there is. And and here's the problem I'm having. I'm looking at those four years of stats and they seem so similar. There's just really nothing that is jumping out right now, other than perhaps the hard contact index. Everything else is virtually the same. The power has, has ticked up a little bit. That's optimistic too. Um, but I mean, if you look at the earnings and look at everything else, um, um, wow, I mean, this is a guy who's going to be 25 next year. He hasn't had a lot of health problems. His health grade is perfect. So there's nothing physically wrong with him. You have to wonder what's going on uh, there um, in, inside of his head and whether he'll make that adjustment. Somebody ought to be working with him this off season. I was going to say that maybe there's an opportunity here to do some coaching. Uh, certainly his walk rate has bounced around. Uh, it was 9% last year, which is not bad. 4% this year, which is bad. And it, it indicates that he's reaching and swinging at things he ought not to be swinging at. And if they could correct that, if they could just get him to swing at pitches that he could hit, all of a sudden he's, uh, he's in a, a much better position, I think. Oh, sure. No, I would agree. I mean, you know, again, a healthy 25-year-old who had all kinds of talent coming up and was even rushed a little bit, let's be honest, uh, coming up as a, as a 20-year-old. Um, there's still upside here. Yeah, Jock, I misspoke about the walk rate. It's 7% last year, 6 this year. In either case, not good enough for a guy who, who needs to be hitting balls he can hit hard if he's going to really realize his true value. So Nomar Mazar, I think, is a really interesting guy. And he's one of those guys, as you said, who's going to present his owners with, is this an opportunity to sell? Is this an opportunity to hold? It's a, it's a conundrum. I think it's uh, not going to be easy to be a Nomar Mazar owner, especially in keeper leagues. Uh, also in that same playing time tomorrow piece that you wrote uh, about the American League West, the Oakland second base situation, uh, the great Franklin Barreto experiment is a comprehensive dud. So the A's still aspire to the playoffs. They're playing very well. What are they going to do at second base to try to firm that up? Well, that's a real good question. I was a big Franklin Barreto fan at the beginning of the year, and I'm still a fan. He's a guy I'm holding on to because I think his power isn't in dispute. It's all about his his plate discipline and chasing. I watched him play a few of those games. When he got called up at the beginning of July, ostensibly to take over Jurek's and Profar's job, uh, he had a miserable uh uh, 42 at bats. He got five hits, 62% contact. 
he's uh, he's got to learn to stop chasing pitches. I don't know how you teach that. He's only 23, so he's even younger than uh, than Mazzara is. Um, Profar is pretty much on his way out, uh, and, and it's interesting. Profar is one of these guys whose whose peripherals aren't all that bad. 83% contact rate. Um, I don't know what kind of an adjustment he has to make. The, the biggest problem he has is that he's totally ineffective against right-handed uh, hitters uh, or right-handed pitching. A 177 batting average this year through 282 at bats. Um, but you know, like I said, despite the base skills that are nowhere, you know near as bad as his bottom line production uh, we're just not seeing a performance uptick that we've been um, that we've been expecting uh, the A's have recently called up uh, Corbin Joseph get this a 32 year old journeyman hitting 371 in a very hitter friendly environment we all know what the PCL in Las Vegas does to hitting and particularly this year he's going to get opportunities to win that second base job or at least to play most of the time um, and so far, he's I think he's three for seven in his first two games. He hit a home run the other night. Um, the A's also have Chad Pender, uh, who's heated up a little bit. He's he's not very good against right-handed pitching either. Career two thirty-three um, hitter against righties. Um, they, they they also have Jorge Mateo, who a lot of people were waiting to see if he would come up. He's on the IL right now, so he's he's a non-factor, and he's actually really tapered off after that hot, after that hot start. He was hitting below 250 uh, the, the, these past two months since the All-Star break. So they have a lot of decisions to make. Now, here's the interesting thing: if you're a keeper league owner. None of Profar, Barreto, or Mateo have any options coming up uh, in 2020. So they have to make some off-season decisions, the A's do, and uh, I'd keep an eye on that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think Profar still are eligible, and the other guys are young enough that they're still under like ironclad cost control. So that may be a, a question for the A's as well. You know, they, they look at Profar, even uh, coming off and off here, his arbitration score or result is going to be a lot higher than what they're going to have to pay some of these younger guys or, uh, you know, lifelong uh, lifelong minor leaguers, as you said, uh, like um, Corbin Joseph. Yeah, um, and, and, and Profar is one of those, when you look at what Tampa Bay did with C.J. Crone last year, Profar's in the last year of uh, of club control. He's he's probably going to get a minor raise. I mean, they they all do uh, going through arbitration, no matter how bad they are. He's a perfect non-tender candidate, and clearly the A's the A's aren't happy with him. Uh, I I expect them to somehow move on from him next year. All right, Jock. A very interesting column, as I said. A very interesting conversation, as always. Today, we'll catch up with you again in a week. Okay, PD. Talk to you later. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat on Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. But right now it's time in the show and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Ryan Bloomfield does a deep dive on first half breakout star Josh Bell. In the Big Hurt Injury Analysis column, analyst Matthew Cedarholm puts his stethoscope on Michael Chavis, Tommy Pham, and Aaron Hicks. And in minor leagues coverage, in addition to the fantastic daily call-ups reports that are so vital at this time of the season, scouting analyst Chris Blessing has a feature in which he revisits three earlier prospect evaluations, including Nate Pearson, Max Freed, and Jose Peraza. 
And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates and playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relief pitchers, and fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, in addition to that injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, some daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, it's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues, and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Rob, welcome back. Thanks for the break. I'm, I'm fully hydrated, ready to go again. In your writing and podcasting, you really pay a lot of attention to how pitchers are mixing their pitches. This is something that's growing in importance, I think, and it's certainly a topic of growing importance in analyzing pitchers for fantasy purposes. Before we get into a particular recent example from your work at Baseball Prospectus, why do you think pitch mixes matter so much in the analysis? Um, well, first off, we didn't have the data before in the same way. Uh, like when, 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 when Ron Chandler started uh, started talking about uh, Lima plans and strikeout rate and, and walk rate, you could watch the game and see, wow, he's, he, this guy throws a really good fastball, throws an interesting slider, has a changeup. But we didn't have the data to know what swing strike rates, what, what individual components of that pitcher is. We had an aggregated uh, stat. We didn't even have swing strike rates. We had strikeout rates. Uh, so one, we have the information now. And two, we know that the teams are, are looking at this. Like We know that, that what differentiates the Houston Astros and the smart organizations from everybody else is they look at pitchers broken down pitch by pitch and what's working, what's not working, how do we make pitches better, and how do we change entire pitch mixes. So, you know, if we're in our little fantasy world trying to uh, get things uh, replicating what the teams are doing and trying to at least keep up with some of their analysis, I think it behooves us to, to do that kind of analysis to see where, um, where guys who, if they just stop throwing this pitch as much, could get better. If they throw this pitch more, they, they, they may get worse. Uh, or they were getting a little vibe on smoke and mirrors, and I don't understand how this was working for this guy, so I'm, I'm worried about this picture. So I know a lot of fantasy owners who are listening aren't real familiar with where the data are stored, how they can access them. Where should they be looking, and how can they, at, at least at a, at a first try, c- consider this information and apply it to how they want to run their fantasy pitching uh, staffs and, and make pitching decisions? So it's it's there there are this, this is one of the challenges there are uh, there are two comp- 
competing uh, methods of compiling pitch-by-pitch uh, uh, data. Um, and one of them is StatCast. And, uh, and, and, and I, I, don't, I, I am not smart enough to know which one is better uh, and which one is not. So there's StatCast and there's PitchFX. PitchFX is the one that, that powers uh, Brooks Baseball. If you've never, if anybody who is never, who's a baseball fan, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a baseball fan. If you've never played around with the free website Brooks Baseball, just go Google it. Uh, it's a great website. Even if you never get anything that helps your fantasy team, it's a fun website that you can uh, – don't do it if you have a busy day at the office today because it will ruin your day because it's, it's very addictive and there's, it's really cool. And you can go player by player through and see all their, their pitch uh, data and break it down by game, by week, by month, by season, see how it progresses, and it's a ton of fun. And uh, StatCast, too. And what, the way I use – StatCast is there is a tremendous writer uh, over at uh, Fangraphs, Alex Chamberlain, uh, fantasy baseball writer of the year, has has presented at the uh, uh, first pitch forum uh, in in, uh, sorry, in, uh, in Arizona, and he's he's a great guy and really smart. He has created a web a website that that captures all of the StatCast data and allows you to sort it by any query you can possibly think of, as well as look at individual pictures. Uh, I would strongly recommend going and finding Alex's uh, website. The easiest way to find it is go look up Alex on Twitter and click in his bio, and it's there. And it is the best resource you can use if this is something you're interested in uh, this winter. Uh, on a cold you know, January night when you're starting to get ready for your baseball season, spend some time with it and look up pitchers you're thinking of drafting, and it's, uh, it will be worth your time, I think. Go Google him or find him on Twitter. Uh, I think it's Dolph Haldhagen is his uh, Twitter handle. Yep. And uh, f- find that and then uh, f- uh, use that to find his website. It's fantastic. You're right. Uh, last week in a fantasy freestyle column at Baseball Prospectus where you write regularly, you had an article called What's Wrong with Musgrove? Uh, taking a deep dive into Pittsburgh right-hander Joe Musgrove. And the thing about this that interested me was Musgrove was one of those tout darlings coming into the season. He had solid skills metrics. A lot of people were saying this is a guy who's a good chance for a breakout and clearly not a breakout, a disappointment this season, an ERA closer to five than it is to four, kind of a pedestrian whip. Uh, expected ERA is also above four, way above four. 115 strikeouts and 130 innings is not that great. Uh, what has gone wrong with Joe Musgrove? Where did all the touts miss? Uh, I think that what they missed was their expectations were way too high on him. So I think that they looked at uh, 2018, uh, so he's coming back from injury, and he had um, a FIP that was half a run lower than his ERA. They looked at his swinging strike rate. They looked at his profile and said, my gosh, this is a guy who is relatively cheap in drafts who could take a big step uh, forward. And, there, and, and again, the process wasn't, uh, wasn't wrong. They weren't just buying into hype. It wasn't sexy rookie syndrome where they're just, you know, looking at the, the shiny new thing and thinking this is exciting. It was quite the opposite. It was a, this is a bit of a tarnished, um, um, you know, lump of coal, but there may be a diamond inside, uh, inside that. And that's a good process, uh, typically. But I think what happened for a lot of them 
is it's not that Joe Musgrove is, um, had a quote-unquote disappointing season. He's sort of done, in terms of the underlying skills and performance, exactly what you should have expected uh, for, for Joe, Joe Musgrove. So while the 4.71 ERA is obviously way higher than you would want, the 4.18 FIP, you know, which looks at his actual skills, is, is pretty much in line with who he's been his whole career, which is a league average to slightly above league average pitcher who's useful in fantasy, but, but isn't much better uh, than that. And that's, that's who he is. So it wasn't so much the performance of Joe Musgrove that's been a massive disappointment. It was all about what people were expecting from Joe Musgrove. There have been some flashes of competence in Joe Musgrove's performance lately. He had six shutout innings at home versus Philadelphia in late July, then six innings of two-run ball in in Cincinnati, which is no mean feat. Uh, But interspersed in there are some duds. He had home-and-home stinkers against St. Louis, uh, 12 earned runs in just over nine innings, 16 base runners. I think uh, an interesting question for you, Rob, is this. How should fantasy owners manage a starting pitcher when he shows this much absolutely baffling game-to-game inconsistency it's tough and it's it's uh it's frustrating and we get inside our own heads in terms of making decisions we try to gain you know time him and game him because it's not as if you know it's not as if he's an nl west pitcher who it you look at it and it's like well this is pretty obvious you don't play him when he goes into colorado and as long as you sit him there uh, you'll be fine. It's not an AL East pitcher where it's like, well, you don't put him in against the Yankees or the Red Sox because he's going to get hammered by them. Uh, ev- otherwise, he's a fine pitcher. Those guys are pretty easy to manage. They may be frustrating, but but at least it's binary. You know, if I pitch my pitcher in Coors, he's going to get smashed. So shame on me if I if I don't listen. With Musgrove and pitchers like Musgrove, there isn't necessarily a rhyme or reason behind um behind when he does well and when he doesn't uh, do well. There's no real reason to think that he's been injured and then he's come back. Like, I've, I dove into the pitch mix that Musgrove has used. Um, he has the potential, and this is why he's still so tempting. He has the potential, I think, to be a much better pitcher, but there's no reason to think Pittsburgh's about to make a change with him uh, because they haven't so far, and it's not, it's not the way Ray Searage does things. Um, so I think that this is kind of who he is, and is and and as your like seventh eighth starter on a staff, that's still pretty good. The problem is lots of people drafted him as their third starter, and many of them have already cut Joe Musgrove. What what inspired me writing it was he was already popping up on waiver wires in some of my leagues, and since I hadn't drafted him anywhere, I hadn't paid that much attention to him. So before I bid on him, I was like, well, let's do a bit of a deep dive and see what's gone wrong with Joe Musgrove. You said in the Musgrove analysis, ordinarily you'd be excited to see sinker usage rates headed towards zero. And this seems to be a common theme. Why should fantasy owners be looking for pitchers who are throwing fewer sinkers? Because sinkers are bad pitches for almost every pitcher. And by bad pitches, I mean they don't miss bats. And old school thinking would be like, well, but that's okay. A ground ball is a ground ball, and we, we want ground balls. Um, and there's some truth to that, except that, that sinkers, two-seam fastballs, what, you know, different, different websites uh, label them different things, um, they get hammered. If you don't miss bats, and uh, you don't have, there, there, are, there are a small handful of pitchers um, who have truly elite sinkers, 
but they're almost zero. And even the ones who have truly elite sinkers, they're not as good a pitch from almost any outcome-based analysis as almost every other pitch. So, uh, so sinkers just just do do not get results. And there are a lot of pitchers out there who are throwing their sinkers 30% of the time or more and getting hammered with it, and yet teams keep using it. Well, one pitcher who has a really huge sinker-heavy mix is former Toronto pitcher Marcus Stroman, now with the Mets. And you wrote about him at the time of the trade, and I agreed with your point that the deal is not going to prove, improve Stroman's fantasy appeal the way that Sanchez moving to Houston increased his. What was the main difference, as you thought? So he, he throws, so far in 2019, I haven't broken this down uh, by Toronto versus the Mets, but they haven't changed anything about him. His two-seam fastball has a 5.4% um, swinging strike rate. What that means, just again, like to, to state the obvious, 95% of the time he throws the pitch, the batter makes contact. It does something with it that is not misswing and miss, missing uh, the pitch. And some people don't like individual pitch FIP or individual pitch uh, XFIP. And I understand why it shouldn't be the end of conversations, because each pitch like builds off of each other. And just because this is the last pitch of an at-bat doesn't necessarily mean it's the pitch that led to the result. But the FIP off of his two-seam fastball is 491. The XFIP is 510. There's no way to spin the fact that when you're throwing a pitch 36% of the time and it's got a 5 FIP, that that's a good pitch for you, that you're getting good value out of that pitch. The only way you could convince me of that is that his slider, which is an excellent pitch, which has excellent outcomes, as most sliders do. So I'm not saying that, that, that he's unique in that, but, but even relative to other sliders. His slider is a very good pitch. The only way you can tell me that his two-seam fastball is, is a really positive uh, pitch is if you tell me that the only way his slider works is if he also throws the two-seam fastball. And maybe that's the case, but, uh, but he needs to become a totally different pitcher uh, for him to take the next level. It's also the problem is we li- the game today with the strikeout rate as high as it is it is extremely hard to be an elite fantasy pitcher over a full season uh, with a below-average strikeout rate. And Marcus Stroman has a below-average strikeout rate. And the strikeout rate is directly tied to his pitch mix. And therefore, unless he changes his pitch mix, the strikeout rate isn't going to change. And unless the strikeout rate changes, his ceiling as a fantasy pitcher most seasons uh, is capped. That doesn't mean that Marcus Stroman is useless. It doesn't mean that he shouldn't be owned. Um, and it doesn't mean that he can't have a quote-unquote fluky, you know, 285 ERA, 110 uh, whip season. Like, that's in his range of outcomes, but his value is capped because of his pitch mix, which leads to a strikeout rate. And, of course, a starting pitcher can generate value with wins. Uh, you have to be willing to argue that Marcus Stroman moving to the Mets is a, is a huge advantage. They're playing well now, but in the long run, you'd have to think about that. And the other aspect of it I wonder if you could comment on is Marcus Stroman takes his so-called uh, ground ball heavy, and that's his, that's his game, that's his advantage, and he moves from a situation in Toronto, artificial surface, which is not uh, helpful for a ground ball pitcher, not the 1970 Orioles when it came to fielding, but he goes to the Mets, and they're like, 
all-time bad in the infield, and that seems to be uh, another reason to really be cautious about Marcus Stroman, the team context. For sure. Um, and Yes, I mean, the, the, the Mets defense is um, atrocious. Toronto's is pretty bad, too. Uh, but of all the teams he could have been traded to, uh, the Mets was pretty much the worst team he could have been traded to. And you don't want to overstate, like, if it's, uh, you know, X number of hits per start or X number of ground balls even per start. Like, who knows how it plays out in terms of his, his stats. But there are many other teams you could have been traded to where the wins uh, environment would have been as good, if not much better, and the infield defense would have been a positive as opposed to a, a, a clear negative for him. And so one last question about a guy like Stroman. When I, I went to Alex Chamberlain's site and I looked at his, uh, his uh, pitch type outcomes for all six of the pitches that he's thrown, but if we look at the, at the top three or four, Except for the slider, which has a 152 FIP, 234 XFIP, which are excellent, all the rest are around five. Like it, the only pitch he throws that's any good is the slider, and he can't throw it 100 percent of the time because you know that if if hitters realize that, he has to use his entire pitch mix to set up the slider, and that doesn't seem to be to augur well for his future success. Uh, is there any pathway for a guy like Marcus Stroman who has one exceptional pitch and then three or four? Bleh, to bad pitches to find a way to value in fantasy baseball? Well, we've we've seen pitchers uh, improve pitches, right? Like we've seen pitchers who go to Houston, for example, who take pitches that are negatives to to you know average pitches and improve it. You can improve change. Some people think you can change spin rate. You can change lo- pitch location. So, for example, a four seam fastball. Um, the higher you throw it in the zone, the better outcomes most pitchers are going to have. Uh, I don't want to make that a, a, a rule of general application. It's not true by definite. You know, me throwing a, a four-seam fastball high in the zone versus low in the zone, uh, it's getting killed either way. So I don't want to overstate it. But there are ways for pitchers to improve. Smart organizations can do that. So, again, Marcus Stroman has had successful years. He's had successful stretches. But... Um, he's been a guy who has been on the cusp and people have thought of him as a quote-unquote ace or a you know, SP2 type pitcher. Um, I'm not sure that what he has right now makes that a great long-term bet. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Rob, in another fantasy freestyle column at Prospectus, you discussed swing and miss leaders among pitchers, and you did it on a pitch-by-pitch basis. That is, you know, whose four-seamer gets the most swing and miss, whose slider gets the most swing and miss, so forth. What made you think to look into it at this level of granularity? Uh, Alex, not to turn this into an Alex Chamberlain fanboy uh, podcast, but he was the one who pushed that. He's written a lot about that. And it's that um, comparing a four-seam fastball to a slider in terms of outcomes gives you a very misleading uh, picture because what you'll conclude very quickly is almost everybody's uh, fastball uh, is worse than, uh, than a mediocre slider. And that's not really true. It's that, that's overstating uh, that. And you're also going to miss a lot of pitchers. And it's going to create a bias in your analysis uh, that way because you're suddenly going to just avoid uh, pitchers who are fastball heavy, for example. And while that may not be a terrible thing, um, you're artificially limiting the player pool that I'm not sure you're going to 
going to make draft decisions that are really all that rational. So he he really pushed me and opened my eyes to um, to looking pitch by pitch and comparing different pitchers, same pitches, and it's not it just just so people are clear. That's not the end of an analysis. So I would never go into a draft of just with a list of the best pitchers with the best sliders. That's who I'm drafting. Like that would never. I would never get to the finish line with this as the analysis. It's uh, this is an interesting um, way to find guys who are um, about to surge or potentially surge, or guys who uh, are about to go the other way. And that's why this is helpful. Uh, analysis for me at least and that's why I think it's worth your time to look into the pitch by pitch uh, comparisons and when you look at them you're just trying to find guys who can get lots of swing and miss on particular pitches and you're not that fussy about which pitches they are no I am as I, as I said sinker if, if 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 you happen to have an eight percent swing strike rate on your your two seamer on your sinker and that happens to put you at the 93rd percentile amongst all sinkers that's interesting but uh, but it's still bad uh, and it's still I'm still worried about your your uh, likelihood of success so it's it's uh, it's about seeing it's you know what it really is is um, there's no doubt that fastball velocity is important. And we, we, there's lots of analysis. Jeff Zimmerman's done some great work, but lots of people have done this work about how um, if you average uh, 100 on your fastball versus 99 versus 98 versus 97, you can see a straight line that, that ER, you know, expected ERA from the fastball um, of, of the faster it is, the better it's going to be. So it's not to diminish fastball velocity or to f- diminish stuff. Like there, we've, we've gotten into a place where there are so many GIFs, GIFs on the Internet of crazy good-looking sliders, crazy change-ups, and you see them over and over again and tell yourself, man, that guy's stuff is nasty because look at how that pitch in that at-bat just broke. And I love looking at that. Like it's 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 like pornography for baseball fans, and the internet was made for pornography. So so I eat it. I eat that up. But it's it. But it's it's anecdotal. It's subjective. It's one pitch against one batter. Fastball velocity is really important, but it's not the end of the conversation. We know that there are pitchers who can have tremendous success uh, with with the 93 mile an hour fastball and we also know there are pitchers who throw 100 miles an hour who can't locate it and who get hammered um, so this is one frame of analysis the pitch by pitch comparisons I do it by percentile just because it, it gives me a number to, to hang my hat on um, uh, and I find it helpful you looked into this over the winter looking backwards at the 2018 season and you found only one pitcher who is 80th percentile or better in swing and miss with four different pitches and six more guys who had three different pitches at that same level of excellence. Uh, can you tell us who they were and uh, how they did? Yeah, so James Paxton was the only pitcher uh, in um, in tw- 2018, if I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, who had uh, four pitches uh, who were... Um, who were 80th percentile or better. And uh, Paxton's arsenal is ridiculous. He's had a weird, Big Maple's had a weird season besides the injury. 
this year. I don't know how closely you've been following uh, Paxton. It's been a frustrating season, but it always feels like he's on the cusp of uh, of greatness. Like his stuff is still so ridiculous, but he's another guy who the results just haven't been there. A four four ERA, a four three eight FIP. So it's not like he's been uh, unlucky. He has you know over eleven uh, Ks per nine, but. Uh, uh, the, the new ball has really hurt him. Like, it's just hard to give up, you know, 1.7 uh, home runs per nine uh, and, and have a successful season. Fast forward to this season, you repeated the study partway into 2019. Again, only one pitcher in the top 20% with all four of his pitches, not James Paxton, obviously. But who was it this time? Uh, this time... Uh, it was Jer- uh, Domingo Germain, uh, Germ- uh, who I um, who I loved uh, coming into this uh, season, um, and part of his value has been uh, driven by uh, wins. And we we never pay for wins; we love when we get the wins. Um, but he's. Um, He's again. He's had. He's. He has not had an even season, and I. It'll be very interesting how people look back on his season and whether I. My guess is, as of today, that he will be on a lot of uh, people's avoid list um, this year because he. His advanced uh, indicators say he's not a great pitcher right now. Right. He's three nine six ERA, four six four um, FIP. Boy, that's 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 of concern, uh, and and people will say, don't pay. He has, you know, he's 16 wins. Let's say he finishes with 19 wins this year. You don't want to chase that. You don't want to pay for those wins. Uh, I think he's a he's actually a really good pitcher, and I think he has really good stuff. And I think he's uh, he's he's one of those weird pitchers. He's I mean, he's another guy. It, it, it's part of Yankee Stadium thing. He's giving up almost two home runs per nine. Um, but I, I, I'm a big fan of his, and I think he's a guy who will come off a great season, fantasy dollar-wise. People will be um, very clever saying, avoid him. You don't want to be, don't be that fool at the draft table who pays for the wins. The wins aren't coming back. Look at who he really is, uh, and the projections will agree with that. And I think he's actually way better than what the projections are going to show for him. In your analysis, you said in wrapping up that you're most skeptical of pitchers who have a combination of very good four-seamers and sinkers. That sounds good to me. Why, why are you skeptical? Um, of all, I mean, well, again, it's not that you can't be a good pitcher with a, a, basically a fastball-fastball uh, mix, but, um, but I think you – I haven't I, – one of the things I'm going to do this winter is try to do a more methodic – I'm going to try to prove the, what I'm about to assert – so my assertion is that that is the most likely to regress to fail guys who have plus plus just two two plus fastballs as a starting pitcher and nothing off speed uh, as a plus pitcher. So no slider, no cutter, no changeup or bad changeups, bad uh, cutters, uh, bad sliders, uh, bad curveballs. Um, that that is the the the, the least likely to um, sustain success and the, the the poorest predictor of future success. So that of this process, you are far more likely to get a uh, pitcher who breaks out, like Blake Snell 
two years ago, for example, um, was off the charts on this pitch-by-pitch um, analysis, and then he had the Cy Young year. This year, we won't talk about this year. Uh, my, what, what, what my assertion is, my thesis, is that um, pitchers with only good fastballs or only two good fastballs, a two-seamer and a four-seamer, are the least likely to take that step forward. I could be entirely wrong on that, but that's my thesis. Well, I'll look forward to that study because uh, identifying if there is an ideal pitch mix that leads to a breakout would be great information to have, that's for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. And Rob, before we get to your boons and banes, you said recently, and I'm sorry, I don't remember where, but Madison Bumgarner was legitimately not a good pitcher last year, but he is this year. Uh, it seems uh, fairly straightforward, but I thought uh, it would be interesting to hear your detailed analysis. Yeah, I, I, uh, we're, we're, uh, fantasy pundits, fantasy touts are very good at, at, uh, at pointing out when we nail things. You know, I, I called this guy was going to be the MVP this year. I tweeted it out in February, and look, I was right. We're all, we're all, we, we, we somehow always find the time to, uh, to, uh, to acknowledge when we get things right. We're, we're not always as good, and I'm as guilty as anyone, at acknowledging uh, when we get things really, really wrong. And I was really, really wrong about Madison Bumgarner. Uh, I thought Madison Bumgarner uh, was finished to a large extent, that the people who um, were high on him uh, coming into this season uh, were wrong, hopeful, nostalgic, superficial, like whatever, whatever term I could have chosen, uh, I felt quite certain that uh, I was not drafting Madison Bumgarner unless he was quite literally free. And um, Madison Bumgarner, on almost any way uh, you want to an- uh, analyze it, uh, is better uh, and is he may, he may not be elite Madison Bumgarner again. He may never become Madison elite Madison Bumgarner again. He's of an age where it's not shocking, even if he hadn't had the injury, that he would never be a peak Madison Bumgarner again. But this Madison Bumgarner is plenty good. Uh, Madison Bumgarner, almost every pitch is better than it was last year. And if if I want to ask myself, well, how did I get the process wrong? Like, where did what did I miss? Part of it, I think, is, and I'm not a doctor, uh, just distance from his injury. So it's not shocking that a year after a very serious shoulder injury, the stuff would be coming back again. I think that that this is the the kind of soft stuff that some of us try to avoid in our analysis. But he's a proud guy. He's a hardworking guy. He's a guy who, who, who sees himself as a top player in baseball, so it's not shocking that he would work his butt off to get back to that place. But if I'm looking at Madison Bumgarner now, if I'm looking at Madison Bumgarner, Bumgarner going into 2020, even assuming he's on San Francisco, like obviously if he gets traded to, to Houston or something, his value goes up even more. But just assume the status quo. Um, I think he's easily a top uh, 15, top 18 pitcher uh, in baseball easily. And I couldn't, if you say no, I, I think you're even still too low on him. Um, like I, I think there's a case to be made that, that he can get even better for next year at his age. 
You also advised uh, fantasy owners to keep their eyes open for Eliezer Hernandez of Miami for next season and that they should hope, if they're interested for next season, that he doesn't get into the rotation this season. What's your thinking there? Yeah, and or, or if he gets into the uh, into the rotation, that he uh, uh, gets smacked uh, smacked around uh, his slider. I don't I don't know uh, I don't know if he has enough pitches to be a long term successful uh, starting pitcher. But his slider is beautiful, and I hope I hope they make it work. I hope. Uh, they can figure it out for him. Like his his uh, his changeups not great. His four seam fastball is not great. Uh, but boy, that slider is uh, is the thing that you write uh, you know old Greek poems about uh, back home in the winter because it's uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pitch. So I uh, I like him. He he will be a guy who will be relatively cheap, uh, if not free, in drafts uh, next year. And I'd like to. Uh, have my toe in that water to see if I'm right that he could be uh, could be a decent little. He's the kind of pitcher that if he if he, if forget the Houston if Houston calls for him if Cleveland calls for him and says well what do you want for, hey Jeter what do you want for this Hernandez kid of yours oh you want you want our, our fourth outfielder yeah we'll take him as a as a middle reliever they'll turn him into a really good starting pitcher I don't know if Miami can do that but I I like him as a as a cheap uh, end game time type starting pitcher next year. So keep your eyes peeled on Eliezer Hernandez for next season. Write that name down now. Uh, I saw an interesting Twitter thread, and I think you saw it too, about next year's ADPs, and particularly if Mike Trout could be supplanted as the chalk number one pick because his stolen bases are declining, while other players like Christian Yelich and Ronald Acuna Jr. provide full five-category production, or at least that's what we expect. What do you think about the possibility, uh, it seems weird to say, Mike Trout not the consensus number one? Um, well, here's the challenge: is as of today, uh, Christian Yelich um, will have earned over a hundred dollars in two seasons. Like he's having, um, I don't, I, 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 I'm, I'm bad at doing like historic fantasy um, uh, earnings, uh, like from 15, 20 years ago. So I don't know if it was Eric Davis, the last player to have like back-to-back seasons as good as Christian Yelich. Uh, I don't know if somebody's done it more recently. I'm sure somebody will tweet at me uh, uh, who's more recent. But if the season ended today, like that's uh, certainly something that Mike Trout's never done, the back-to-back seasons that Christian Yelich uh, will have had just finished. Now, you don't get any value for those last two seasons, but it's really tough to say after he's had those two seasons that he's not the top uh, player. Except that Ronald Acuna has just passed Christian Yelich in terms of earnings, at least in my valuations, like in the last in the last couple of days. And Acuna is so hot right now that he could he's making a run at forty forty pretty easily. And at his age, why do you pass on Ronald Acuna? Uh, you know, especially with with the speed that he has, that seems like a pretty safe skill. To, to even if even if the power slumps, the batting average slumps, that speed gives Acuna such a high floor with the ceiling that we're seeing right now. So I don't think it's crazy at all to to think that Mike Trout isn't not is not just not the first pick in drafts, but is the third pick in drafts. Um, and just so so people don't think that I've uh, I've been drinking while I've been doing the podcast, uh, it's still pretty early in the morning here. Just so people know, uh, while I'm not drinking, um, 
Mike Trout's the best player in baseball. There's no doubt Mike Trout's the best player in baseball. If I could pick any one player on my real baseball team, it's, I wouldn't even hesitate for an instant before I say Mike Trout. So I, this is not an anti-Mike Trout comment, but I think there will be really good debates uh, this winter between those three players, and I don't think any of the three are crazy answers. I think, and I think you will see plenty of drafts, assuming that assuming Yelich is healthy down the stretch. That's the one thing. Uh, if Yelich, if the, if if the injury is becoming a nagging thing, that could scare some people off. But as of today, uh, you can make a very good case for for Acuna. You can make a very good case for Yelich, and you can make a very good case for Mike Trout. Can you make a very good case for any starting pitchers? That's become a new hobby horse for people to start talking about for a couple of years. The last couple of years, it's been, uh, you've got to get that, uh, spend that early draft pick on an ace starter now because it hasn't worked out that well this year. Everybody's saying you can't spend your first pick on a, on a starter, and it just seems to ebb and flow depending on what just happened. Is there any case for Max Scherzer as a number three pick ahead of Mike Trout? Um. Maybe there is. I don't know that I'll be making uh, the case. And part of the reason is, like, the, the argument for Scherzer is he's been so consistently dominant. So it's, it's, it's not just that he uh, was dominant, it's that he's consistently dominant. And he's going to be 36 uh, next year. And again, this is not an anti-Max Scherzer uh, comment. But when you combine a guy who's going to be coming off a, even if he's back this week and finishes off with, you know, 50 innings the rest of the way and looks dominant and goes into the playoffs and looks dominant, he will have had an injury marred uh, season. He, it will be, it is going to be very, if you assume he has seven or eight starts left and he needs 65 innings uh, to get to 200 innings uh, this year, uh, my simple math means says that he needs to average eight innings per start and get eight full starts the rest of the way uh, to get to 200 innings. If he doesn't get to 200 innings, it's the first time since uh, 2012 that he doesn't get to 200 innings. So a 36-year-old pitcher coming off an injured season, I like Max Scherzer next year, but I'm not taking him over Mike Trout. Who are the other options? You know, Justin Verlander, he's 37. Garrett Cole... Garrett Cole's a great pitcher, and he'll, he will be a first-round uh, pick next year, but he's not over uh, Mike Trout or any of, or, or Yelich or Acuna. And Jacob DeGrom, and again, I like Jacob DeGrom a ton. He'll be a late first-round pick next year also, I think, uh, but not over those three hitters. Those like I, 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 I am in the it's fine to take uh, pitchers in the first round, but not when one of those guys are available to you. So if you have a first three pick, you're not thinking pitcher next year. Rob, during the season, as you know, we ask our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, um, you've gone through this before, so we don't need to go into detail, but let's just start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners with 40-some games to go. Uh, start in the American League with a boon hitter. Uh, Gio Urshela from, uh, from the Yankees. Uh, we talked about him on the podcast yesterday, so on this week's uh, episode. Um, I don't know the people real. He is free agent in lots of leagues right now, and I understand, but I don't think people understand how good a season Joe Sherla is having and how dominant you, you need to own any Yankee right now that you can own in that lineup. The players who, I'm just reading uh, off of my current valuations right now, right ahead of him in, in dollars earned as of this morning, uh, Jeff McNeil, Michael Conforto, Jose Abreu, 
the players right behind him in, in, in earnings. Josh Donaldson, Yohan Makata, Domingo Santana, Trey Turner. Um, that he is a free agent in some leagues, I don't understand, but um, he's a guy that we will have lots of conversations again this winter about who, it, it, like the Max Muncy type conversations, but for now, um, own him. Talking of Gio Urshela, this is literally something nobody saw coming. And as you said, there's still a lot of people who don't believe it. There's going to be a lot of people next year who don't believe it. Was there any kind of foreshadowing in Gio Urshela's past career anywhere along the line that he might have this in him? Do you know how many teams he was on last year? He was on the Blue Jays. He was on the, the Indians, I think. He was on the Yankees. So, like, it's 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 one of those stories. If if every if 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 major league teams didn't believe enough in him to, because anybody that 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 tell if if any player who's on three teams in a season like that tells me any team could have had them. So if if major league teams didn't believe uh, in uh, Urshela, uh, why would we have believed in Urshela? So no, nobody believed in. I, I don't know that Gio Urshela believed in Gio Urshela. I think one of the things that uh, I'm going to do in this offseason is I'm going to try to comb through Gio Urshela's previous three seasons and try to say, was there anything here that pointed in this direction at all? But his previous three seasons, he missed 2016, but 15, 17, 18, his baseball HQ values were minus four, minus four, minus four dollars. Three straight minus four dollar seasons. This year, plus 23. And, you know, I can't even remember when anybody had that long string of really subpar, sub-replacement performance and all of a sudden shot up into a mid-$20 season. And I'm real curious to see if there's some kind of flag or something that went on. Or could it be, if you if you think about the MVP machine, the book that uh, uh, Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sochik wrote about these guys who are getting this intensive technology-dominant coaching, whether maybe Gio or Shella figured something out, I don't know. I, I'd be really curious to find out what he did because it would be great to know who the next one's going to be. Uh, in the National League... Rob, who's a boon hitter for the rest of the season? Uh, Josh Rojas. Uh, so he just got uh, traded over to Arizona. And I, th- if you need, uh, and he's been called up, if you need um, speed, and if boy, if you don't need speed in your league uh, right now, then, then tell me what you did, because everybody needs uh, speed. Uh, right now, right now, but if you need speed uh, down the stretch, um, he is um, a really good hitter, and I think he will um, get a shot. And uh, I think he will get uh, playing time because I think he's uh, um, better than uh, than Adam Jones. So I uh, I really like uh, Josh Rojas, and I think he is one of those sneaky. I hate the term league winner because you need all your players. Like it's, this is not fantasy football where one player having a big week sixteen is going to win you your uh, league. But if you need if you need to pick up three points in stolen bases, and you look at your waiver wire and you say to yourself, "Where the heck am I going to find an additional seven stolen bases the next seven weeks to to make up those points?" Josh Rojas is a guy who you may be able to pick up uh, still and uh, who could make that difference. 
not a banjo type guy either. I think his OPS in in both organizations at AAA was over 900. So he's certainly got things figured out. There's a large component of that is uh, on base percentage, but he's also hitting the ball hard. Uh, his uh, slugging percentage, I think, was in the mid 500, so 550 ish. So uh, he's not. It's not like he's paddling the ball around out there with a tennis racket and then and then using his blazing speed to succeed. It's a it's a pretty good package. Uh, over to the mound. Who's a boon pitcher in the American League? So I'm going to give an answer that will almost certainly get me banned from this podcast and banned from any Baseball HQ-related event or publication for the, for the rest of time, because there's no... If, if you were going to sum up rules about Baseball HQ, it would be don't chase wins. Like, look at skills, look at underlying uh, ability. Uh, and I, I believe in that, and I agree with that. But there's a time of the year where... Uh, if you need wins, you need to chase wins. And uh, even if the skills aren't great, um, it doesn't matter. That's what you need, and you, you sometimes got to swallow it up uh, for wins. So the pitcher I think that you should pick up if you're in that situation where, again, you have like six teams within four wins ahead of you uh, right now is our old friend CeCe Sabathia, who's coming off the, the uh, injured list this week. And... There are lots of openings right now for him. I mean, Cece Spathia, if he's healthy, will pitch every fifth day for the Yankees the rest of the season. The Yankees are, uh, with the Dodgers, the best team in uh, baseball. They score enough runs that if he can pitch five innings, um, he will get wins. And uh, I think Cece Sabathia, he's retiring at the end of the season, not to get into narrative street here. But I think he wants to finish strong. I think he wants to start in the postseason. So I would go grab CeCe Sabathia off the waiver wire and do something that nobody at Baseball HQ would ever tell you to do, which is just chase wins, like unashamed, unabashedly, that's what I'm doing here, and I'll figure out how to manage the hit I take in ERA and whip uh, somewhere else. And just for the record, I don't think anybody at Baseball HQ would disagree with you. At this time of year, if, if wins are something you can do, then wins are something you got to do. Uh, in the National League, who's a boon pitcher for you? This is the least actionable thing, uh, but I, I just wanted to mention uh, uh, how lucky we are to see it. Clayton Kershaw. I think Clayton Kershaw is arguably the best pitcher in the National League again, and it makes me so happy because there's no pitcher since Pedro Martinez that I enjoy watching pitch more. And there was, again, like what, what it uh was saying earlier about Madison Bumgarner, there was every reason in the world to think that um, that it was over for him or that the decline was here. And Clayton Kershaw's ability to take it to a next gear is a joy that all of us who are baseball fans, and again, anybody listening to this is a fan of the game, uh, should take great pleasure in. And I think he is only getting better this season. And I think um, watch watch Clayton Kershaw games because last year was a reminder we won't get to watch them forever. Rob, you're a guy, as we talked about earlier, who looks into these pitchers at quite a level of detail. Has Clayton Kershaw adjusted his pitch mix or his approach to how he's going about things over the years in a noticeable way that seems to be maybe holding off Father Time? He is, and that's a, it's a much longer conversation, but, but he is. Um, how, sustainable, how sustainable it is for him is not just there in the numbers. And, like, again, that's, that's, that's weak analysis, but it's, it, he has made adjustments as his velocity has gone down. Clearly he has, and he's had to. Um, 
lots of people are going to look at Clayton Kershaw's season at the end of the year and say, well, that BABIP's not sustainable. Like, he's getting, eventually he's going to just get, the batters are going to figure this uh, new junk bally Kershaw out, and you just can't, this can't work. And I'm like, uh, maybe. Great players do great things. Great players do things other players can't do. That's what makes them great. Like, these are all tautologies, but, but they happen to be true. So I, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's a much longer conversation, but yes, he has clearly made adjustments. Yeah, and his strikeout rate is down, and a lot of those kind of things expected ERA is creeping up over the years. But, you know, it, what it reminds me of is a guy like Greg Maddox, who, as he aged, just figured out other ways to get guys out than pure dominance. And you're right, it's a joy to watch. He was terrific the other night uh, in Miami. Uh, he looked like he was going to maybe die of, of dehydration. He was sweating so much in that Miami heat. But holy cow, what a game. Uh, I know it's only Miami, but holy cow, what a game. It's just great to watch. Uh, Rob Silver's Boone's Geo. Urshela of the Yankees, Josh Rojas of Arizona, CC Sabathia of the Yankees, four wins only, and Clayton Kershaw just for the sheer joy of it. Uh, over to the Baines, Rob, these are guys about whom you think our listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter uh, that should be a Bane? Uh, somebody who I love and somebody who I think is going to be a superstar, but I think is playing hurt right now is Austin Meadows. So Austin Meadows was tremendous, then he got hurt, and he has not been the same player since he came back. And I think we're going to find out this offseason that he was never uh, fully healthy um, again when he came back. So I'd love to be wrong because I own Austin Meadows in lots of places, but I just don't think he's right right now. He, you know, then, and there's little glimpses for little times that, that oh, it's coming back, and then not. So I, I, I don't think Austin Meadows will finish the season strong, but I'd love to be wrong. Austin Meadows, a thumb injury, and boy, they can really play havoc with a guy trying to swing a bat for a living. Uh, in the National League, who's a Bane hitter? Uh, for similar rationale, one of my uh, favorite uh, players who is r- having a weird uh, season is Anthony Rizzo. So Anthony Rizzo, the last like six weeks, he's hitting really well. He's just not hitting any home runs. Like he has two home runs in his last, I think it's 150 plate appearances, which is not normal. And it's certainly not normal in this age of baseball with this ball that they're playing with. So it's not that he's struggling. Like his WRC plus is almost 140 in that period but he's not getting the ball over the plate and that something is wrong there. And I don't understand what it is. Um, and maybe he's about to go off and hit like 12 home runs in the next month. Um, but I think there may be something else that's causing him to not drive the ball over the fence that we'll find out later. Back over to the mound again and to the American league. Who's a Bane pitcher? Uh, every single pitcher on the Boston Red Sox. I don't want any of them right now because they're all awful. I don't know what's going on in Boston, but it is uh, a, a dumpster fire from Chris Sale on down. So I would uh, I would figure a way to just avoid anybody from the Boston Red Sox uh, throwing the baseball for the rest of the season. And in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? Uh, Mr. Paddock, who has been so good if you drafted him as a uh, rookie. So not as good as you may think he is, and we'll, we'll talk about that more. But I think Chris Paddock, as the Padres are um, have fallen out of the race, they're not they're not making the playoffs uh, this year. I think they're babying 
going to baby Chris Baddock. I think they're going to shut him down uh, relatively soon, like another couple of weeks. And if you own him on your fantasy team, it's um, it'll be very frustrating. You'll yell, you'll scream, you may cry, but I would start preparing for the fact that you are going to lose Chris Paddock uh, at some point uh, relatively soon. Rob Silvers Baines, Austin Meadows of Tampa, Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs. We have the entire Boston pitching staff and Chris Paddock of San Diego. Uh, Rob, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Rob Silver. Uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at Rob Silver, but there's a Canadian election, as, as, as some of us uh, know, coming up. So I might wait until early November if you don't follow me on Twitter to start following uh, me on Twitter and then Launch Angle Podcast uh, wherever you, you download podcasts and at uh, Baseball Perspectives. And will you be attending First Pitch Arizona in October? I would not miss it. I am so excited uh, for it. We're going to do a live podcast there. I'll be on a on a panel this year uh, there. But the, if you've never, if you're listening and you've never been, and I know I, I, I get do not get paid to, to promote it. I, I I I promote it because I like the product. It is one of my two favorite weekends of the year. It is so much fun. It's it. It's, it's not just the sessions. The sessions are great. The panels are great. It's just hanging out. It's talking to smart, interested, like-minded, good guys and women, and it is, um, it's outstanding. So I know it's a big time commitment, and for a lot of people, it's, it's a big money commitment. Uh, but if you can find your way there this year or in a future year, uh, you will, I, I have not met somebody yet who has gone who said, wow, that was a big disappointment. That was quite awful. I'll never do that again. Everybody who goes has a good time. Rob, thanks very much for helping us out this week. It was terrific, as I suspected it would be. I do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks. Anytime. Rob Silver writes for Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. When we come back, our weekly Talk with Todd. That's Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about one of my favorite topics, international tariffs and trade. Ah, just kidding. I want to bring you up to speed on First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, baseball, expert panel sessions, baseball, workshops, baseball, drafts, baseball, and one other thing. Oh yeah, baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, as well as guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over, and you can approach these experts, hit them up for advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League games. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. Or more, you know, who am I to stand in the way of hospitality? The fun at first pitch always continues in the evenings, and this year there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen and talking baseball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now you'll want to start thinking about this and getting out your calendar pretty quickly, because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium takes place earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and it's at a new conference venue, the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, 
a one relay throw from Hohokam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference hotel rate, and when I checked it was at least $40 cheaper than the best online prices, and that's in Canadian money. If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously and who likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a long weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to the 13th in Mesa, Arizona. Find out more by going to BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo over there on the right just underneath the HQ radio logo. Check it out. Get in early to take advantage of some early bird discounts. It's First Pitch Arizona. It's October 10th to 13th. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. Before we start talking about your latest article, uh, I was curious what's going on with uh, Tout Wars Daily uh, Contest. You have a big tournament that runs almost the length of the season, and you're coming down to the finals. What's going on there? Yeah, um, it's uh, what's going on is Baseball HQ's Phil Hertz is crushing it. Yeah, Phil 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 has a had a nice season. He uh, he's a Mets fan and he rode the Mets and he picked a good uh, several good weeks to, early in the season when the Mets weren't doing so well. He was riding the Mets and he had they happened to do good, but he picked a good team the past several weeks to to bring it home. But it's fun. He's got four tickets out of the sixteen. I think Scott Pianowski, a frequent guest on the on HQ Radio, has got a couple. Derek Van Riper has a couple. And then they're scattered through it. I think I think Ray Murphy. I think Ray has one. So um, hope so anyway. Now that I mentioned it, but we'll start it up next Tuesday, the three-day tournament. This is uh myself. I I usually do well in Tout Daily. I mean, I don't want to humble brag, but I usually do well. I um I don't have any tickets this year. I've actually been the the point scoring leader for the past two years. I could not crack the code, and I, I admittedly didn't put as much effort into it as normal but i just i had a terrible season for tout daily but it's still fun i'm a huge proponent of the league format so um it's kind of the why i continue to run it so good luck to the good luck to the gentleman there's a we have got no ladies so i can say gentlemen and not be worried about being chastised on twitter so good luck to the, the gentleman in it we'll have a brand new tout daily champion come uh let's see uh a week from tuesday you write regularly the Z Files column at RotoWire, and uh, I like the way you started the column this week. Uh, it you, you said luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity, and that's a a, a quote <laughs> from the old Roman uh, philosopher Seneca. Let's start here. What is the opportunity? The opportunity is to understand, or not even understand, just to simply know what's coming up in the next thirteen series. At this point, we're down to uh, we're, we're at the official quarter poll. I like to I like to troll those that call the quarter poll one quarter into the season. So I've been doing a little troll job on Twitter the past day or so, with, uh, mentioning quarter poll as much as I can because this is the true quarter poll. Anyway, so uh, it's 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 this with with 13 series left, six and a half weeks. I think it's that's enough time to look ahead. And plan pickups or try to make trades, 
to take advantage of certain scheduling quirks. Now, it, it's not perfect, but in the, as close as some competitions are, and here comes another humble brag, unfortunately, this is the first year I'm ever competing in a national overall competition. Well, I mean, I've competed in them, but I haven't. I haven't been competing in them. It's the, the, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, and I'm finding myself doing more looking ahead. And to me, this is sort of a a note that I should be trying, you know, I should be doing this. I should have been doing this already. Uh, I had, I, I'm, le I'm learning the hard way that there's more work that I haven't been doing. And I kind of knew it, but it's kind of hammering at home. So... It's not it's, it's sort of balance out the humble brag. It's sort of slapping myself for not doing these things in previous seasons. Maybe that's why I haven't competed. But anyway, the point being, um, looking ahead and trying to find edges, because you got to be you got to be ahead of the game. You can't you can't go to the free agent list and 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 look for John Birdie and expect him to be there. He's already gone. You had to you had to know that the Marlins had a schedule against the Rockies. This weekend, you know, currently going as we're speaking, the this, this series is going on now, and you needed to pick Birdie and Isan Diaz and whoever else up, you know, maybe even before the, the most recent fab. You, you just you need to know ahead. And even though people are, it's summertime and they're thinking about vacations or who knows, even fantasy football, there's, you know, there's the people competing in your league are still active in the wire but there's some there to not and it just it opens up the opportunity even more to get the help that you need so to get that edge over the people also still competing looking uh, a week or two ahead of the, ahead of time and that's what this break looking at the schedule does it gives you the information you need to sort of plan for the final quarter of the season well, for a long time now, we've been talking about the possibility of, of just taking a look at which teams have the most games left to play, and if you can possibly, you know, trade a mm -hmm. trade a guy from a team who's got, you know, twenty six games left, and acquire a guy because of rainouts or or snowouts or whatever earlier in the year has twenty nine. Yeah, those three extra games can come in handy. But you've gone a, another level here, and I, I have to say, I thought when I read the article that uh, it, it looks a lot like the preparation that a lot of guys would do for daily play. You're looking at, uh, at uh, you know, what is the quality of the hitting that you're going to face aggregated over this time. If you're a pitcher, what is the quality of the pitching you're going to face for hitters? And in this way, you're starting to create, I don't want to call them stacking opportunities, but you're creating opportunities to go for real discrete matchups. And I think that's the real advantage. And you set it all up in sortable tables. Yeah, so going back to the the games played, it's it's. I mean, we both noticed this is that th having the most number of games doesn't guarantee players on that team play more games, just because their their schedule is is, is you know blasted and there's no off days, no natural off days. The teams that don't have as many games, they may not have to. The Red Sox have the fewest games left. But that may mean they don't have to rest Mookie Betts. They may not have to rest Rafael Devers uh, as much as the teams with more games may want to rest some of their players. The uh, the, the sort of the caveat, and I, I, I added this into the article after you happen to look at it uh, when I sent it to you. The, the caveat is teams in the playoffs are competing for a playoff spot that have a lot of games. They're going to play their players. 
you know they gotta they gotta capture the, the you know they're gonna they'll, they'll rest when they can, but the St. Louis Cardinals have got 43 games left starting Friday night, and they're obviously involved and in, embroiled in a, both a, a pennant chase and a wild card race, or division race and a wild card race. They so they've got they've got five more games than the Red Sox and the Blue Jays and four more than the Yankees. That's a, that's a lot at this point of the season. That's 13 percent more games, and they're gonna they have to play Marcel Azuna. They have to play. A healthy Matt Carpenter. They have to play Paul Goldschmidt. So there's where you can gain an edge: is a team that's in the play or competing for a playoff berth. Not to mention, could get an extra game at the end of the season if they're tied. That dead counts. Uh, so you know, maybe jumping ahead. But a team like the Cardinals, I'm, I'm, I want to target either in trades or the lesser players that could be still available for pickup on the Cardinals, because uh, there's where you're going to get more games. And as I said, it goes deeper into the into the weeds on trying to figure yeah. out exactly where the advantages are, uh, especially using WOBA and expected WOBA to kind of calculate who's who's facing the toughest opposition versus the least tough opposition. And when you look at it in that sense, Todd, which teams seem to have an overall schedule advantage? Yeah, I looked at I looked at the um, the division races too, just because of curiosity, because those are the where people that's where teams are going to play now you'd think the teams within the same division would probably face similar pitching and they do but um the, one of the teams that really stuck out was the the rays now you don't have a plethora of rays there's the rays especially just because the rays like to platoon there's only x amount tommy fam plays every day uh so he's in the fantasy lineup every day but they face the toughest aggregate pitching at least on paper. Now, this is based on season-long marks, and rosters have changed, and they'll continue to change. So this is kind of like a starting point where this is what it's been, and now in your head you have to, all right, they, you know, so-and-so, you know, Max Scherzer's is hurt, so I have to adjust Washington for the upcoming series, or, or so-and-so, you know, so-and-so has been called up from the minors, et cetera, or so-and-so was traded away. So you have to make your own adjustments, but this is a decent starting point. Tampa, by far, faces the toughest pitching, and that's including two series against the Orioles. But they draw the Astros, the Dodgers, and the Indians. I didn't look it up, but those are probably, well, I can actually sort the table here and see. Those are probably three of the three of the toughest, uh, well, I can't sort the table because I don't have it by team. I have it by schedule. But those are probably three of the toughest staffs out there. So if you're counting on, some, if you have some rays in your lineup, Tommy Pham specifically, amongst others, Hopefully, you have other play other players on your active hitting roster to pick up what could be a slight dip in his numbers over the course of the rest of the season. And is there a team or two that has uh, maybe a hitting advantage? Uh, the Rays are on the ba- bad end of facing tough pitching. Who's on the good end facing weak pitching? Yeah, uh, at least again, according to the numbers, and we don't things have changed. But based on the numbers, and it's a good starting point. I like what the Texas Rangers have got for the rest of the season. This is where we talk about where you get the edge. You know, knowing that Tampa faces a tough schedule and Texas faces a good one, and I think with St. Louis as well. These are the sort of the places you can get the edge. The 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 Rangers play more home games than away games, which is a good thing, especially. In Arlington, in in their in their hitter favorite park, it's not as extreme as it was last year. But last year, Globe Life Park was one of the top hitting parks. Actually, it was the top hitting park in the league. 
but they're also slated to face the highest WOBA allowed, eyeballing Texas' schedule, Minnesota, L.A., the White Sox, L.A., they'll be in the Angels, Seattle, the uh, Yankees, so they have an out-of-division out of game against Baltimore, against Baltimore, which is going to help. So Texas seems to be facing some weaker pitching than other teams, and yeah, someone like Nomar Mazzara is already losing some playing time, so he probably wouldn't be it. But this is this is the place you may want to look for the lightning in a bottle. Maybe a Ruggie Odor. Finally, you know, we're all predicting the Statcast numbers say he's gonna get better. You know, maybe it finally happens. Something like that. So I would look for some potentially available players on the Rangers. Not only do they play a lot at home, they seem to be facing weaker pe pitching, at least on paper, for the last. Like I said, 40, 40-something games. Guy I like on that roster who's not real widely owned, especially in shallower leagues, is Willie Calhoun. Yep, exactly. And he, the the lefty, I didn't break it down. We just we don't obviously we don't we don't know who's going to pitch tomorrow, let alone the next seven weeks. But he'll face primarily left-handed. I'm uh, sorry, right-handed batters as a lefty hitter. And who knows? Maybe maybe Texas does the right thing and gives him some shots against. Southpaw pitching to see if he can do it. They they did that with Joey Gallo uh, earlier, and they, they found out, yeah, you know what, he can he can handle lefty pitching, so he became a regular. So maybe they will. Hopefully, hopefully they will. Uh, Danny Santana as a switch hitter, it, 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 you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. But we keep waiting for the bottom to fall out, and he he keeps trucking along, kind of like Eric Sogard. So sometimes you have to just forget about the the metrics and and go with the opportunity and 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 ride the hot hand if you will and so someone like Danny Santana could be a target either in a trade or um you know if you're a keeper league if you're in a keeper league and making a run these you know on on a contract that can't be uh kept over or something like that it's not a bad thing um it's sort of it's completely off topic but was talking about Texas there's going to be a new park next year and we don't know how it's going to play. It's hot in Texas, obviously, so it should play pretty favorably. Chances are, though, it's not quite as favored. Uh, quite as favored. So, in places I can, I'm trying to get Texas pitching on the cheap, just because right now it didn't cost much. You know, Col Colby Allard coming over, maybe Mike Miner is 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 less than what he might. You know, without knowing what the park is, but I think I think it's an interesting speculative keeper Texas pitching because I can't imagine the venues more hitter friendly than 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 currently than currently uh, composed also if I'm not mistaken I think it's a roofed stadium and they're because yeah. of the hot weather they'll turn the air conditioning on and that's going to change a lot yeah. about the aerodynamics of the ball and the and the friction of the air and that kind of thing uh, it's a really interesting column Todd and I really recommend it at, at rotowire it's behind the paywall but there are there are some uh, free ways of getting in there and having a look around for a week or two so uh, you might want to check into that uh, getting back to the great fantasy baseball invitational you were being a little modest I think because you said you were <laughs> being competitive and uh, actually you're leading the entire overall thing 315 fantasy baseball experts and they're in the number one slot Todd Zola and I remember earlier in the year when we talked about the uh, FBI as I'll call it 
you were having a good year. You were floating around third and fourth. Then you fell to 12th, 13th around there. Now you're all the way back up to number one. I know one of the things that happened was Trey Turner came back. You lost him to injury and he came back to your team. What I'm sure that helped. What else has gone right since you were sort of lowest part of the of the top 10, top 15? Yeah, basically, I've been, I, I, I hung around, I mean, you said third or fourth. I was like 10th or 12th. For a large part of the season, I was I was kind of happy about that because I was doing it without anybody getting really hot, and I figured I was do that hot streak, and that's what's happened the past week. Yuli Gurriel, it's a little it's it slowed down a bit, but Yuli Gurriel was just was just going off. Kyle Seeger, who I identified at the All Star break, is someone who I you know I wasn't the only one. You know the Statcast numbers were favorable. He wasn't getting the the numbers I expected him to uh get better and he's been crushing it brian anderson so at this point i i got i'm getting the the hot streak from the un, you know from the non-stars what cody bellinger was so hot early was why i got out to a fast start so right now what's happening is i'm getting the that the hot streak from the secondary players and i'm getting my injured you mentioned trey turner i'm getting marcelo zuna just came back just was able to put Yadi Molina back in the lineup, crossing my fingers because he hasn't done well since he came back. So that's kind of what's happened now is uh, the under. So now the underrated players. So now I'm you know in first. I just you want to have everybody just do their thing, and hopefully the pitching won't fall apart. What also helped me is Aaron Nola remembered that he was Aaron Nola, and has completely turned his season around. Mike Clevenger came back. It's weird. I'm mentioning all these names, and I've had Mitch Haniger out, and I mentioned I had. Uh, Clevenger. I mean, I've had a ton of injuries, but so has everybody. So it's it's one of those things where I'm you know kind of learning as I, you know again in the NFC since its inception, and I'm learning new things because I'm in this contest and, and and competing and the whatnot. So it's uh, hopefully I'll be able to apply these things for the future. Nelly Cruz is out for me now, so you can you can get over a lot of bad things to your roster. You mentioned Trey Turner. You know, even though he's out, he's not stealing the bases that I thought he would or that I hoped he would, I should, you know, say. So it's it's interesting. I kind of, I picked Turner more of an experiment than anything else. And uh, it's weird how these things sort of happen, that, that the, the experiment is turning out to be pretty good. Who knows, though? You know, we're talking three weeks and I could be back in 15th and who knows going from there. But um, it's been a fun ride so far. And, man, I'm already looking on a nightly basis, you know, you don't look at the schedule at the beginning, or at least you say you don't. I'm, I'm, I'll admit, I've been looking at a nightly basis to see what's happening. Can't imagine, you know, our friends Rob Silver and, and Ray Murphy's been in some pen of chases, Dave Potts, who you've had on the show, and all the other NFBC players. I can't imagine doing this knowing there's a six-digit payday on the line. Well, and something that I, I think is interesting is uh, I was on a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking with one of the co-hosts, who also happens to be the leader in the in my in my league within the FBI. We all have a bunch of fifteen-team leagues, and there's an overall. Mm-hmm. I'm b- bouncing back and forth between second and third. He's in first in our league, and uh, his name is Ruvain Guy, and he's the guy who's one slot behind you in the overall. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was talking pretty interestingly about how when you get to this point of the season and you're you're very competitive for the overall, it actually changes the way you focus on the moves you need to make because you're no longer that concerned about winning your individual league. Now your focus is 100% on doing well in the overall. And I wondered, you probably have had the same experience. How much, how different is it, let me ask, 
to manipulate the categories and focus on the categories when the the numbers involved are so big. Yeah, I I always you know looked at it from afar and just assumed there was a difference, and I'm not going to say there's not. Now, though you know those of us that are lucky enough to be in the position we're in at the top of the overall have probably got a pretty decent lead in our leagues, so that we don't have to worry about all right, I'm going to lose a point if I if I focus on this, I'm going to lose a point here. We're not as worried because we're probably not going to lose the league. That matter in the NFBC where there's money on the line, there's a huge difference. There's a difference between first and second and third, and as far as the prize money goes towards that, so it may be a little different, especially if two teams are both competing for the overall and competing for the league prize. It may temper things, but what I found here was it doesn't matter what stat you get if it's a steal or a homer or a save or a win, because it's the overall. Everyone they all help. They're all important. Every single stat is important. If if I if if my guy gets a save, I suddenly gain 15 standing points in the overall. You know, in 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 you know if I if, if someone gets a steal, I go up three or four. Every stat matters. So I don't worry about Mike. You know, oh, I need more. I haven't broken it down to look at the overall and say, all right, this number of steals gets me this number of points. I want to focus on steals. Everything matters. So my focus is just on even being more meticulous to make sure I don't, I have as many just get stats. Give me stats, give me stats, give me stats, because even if I'm near the top in homers, there's still people that went really offense heavy, so I'm going to pass those teams if I get a homer. So what I'm finding is I'm not, I'm not breaking micromanaging for the overall. I'm just focusing on at-bats and plate appearances and more games and things you do anyway. Um... But that's so I haven't gotten to the point. Maybe towards the end, if I'll then take the time to with my little Excel sheet to download the teams and the individual categories and find out if there's a way down, you know, the last week of the season, if there's a category I want to focus on. But right now, it's just numbers, 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 stats, stats, stats. Yeah, when uh, when Ruvain told me that story about how he's looking at the overall, I went and looked at it. I'm in 40th spot or something, and my goal was to finish 45th or, or better, top 15% of the yeah. overall league. And and so I'm looking at this uh, at this overall standing setup, and what you said is really true. You look at where you are in stolen bases, say, and in a, in your regular league, because there's only 14 other competitors, sometimes it can take you three or four stolen bases to gain one point. In in the overall, because of the bunching that goes on, you get three or four stolen bases, you're gaining 15 points. Mind you, they don't yeah. help you as much as 15 points would help when you're playing a 15-team league. 15 points can, you know, the uh, overall points totals, you're at 2,600 or something like that. So uh, if you even if you gain 26, that's only a 1% improvement. But it's interesting that the bunching uh, affects the statistics gathering a little bit differently. Yeah, and you know, the, the, obviously, you know, maybe there's actually there's going to be a, a panel at first pitch where Rob Silver and uh, Dave Potts and I think Matt Modica, you know, Ray Ray Murphy jokingly said that, that we're so deep in speakers that he's not even though he's had several uh, NFBC top overall runs, he's not even qualified to to be on this particular panel. Rob's won it, Dave's won it, Matt's had excellent teams, he's won some. He's won some uh, singular leagues. He has, he's, and he's, he's involved in several overall runs here. So they would be much more, you know, go to first pitch Arizona, pick their brains 
you know, the, you know, I'm just a clown. That's 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 right now at the very beginning of experiencing the the overall run in the in the in the TGFBI. So I, I as far as actual experience, it's one thing to talk what we think should be the case to actually live it and experience it. I'm learning new things. So hopefully that'll make both my draft prep and my my analysis, which is probably more important for for for. For people listening, hopefully it'll add another level to my analysis. And it's not even just, well, I only care if I'm in an overall. I think the things you learn, you have to figure out how they can transcend to to all different leagues and all different formats. Well said, Todd. Uh, best of luck the rest of the way in the FBI. I'll sure be watching that race while I'm watching my own position, of course. Good luck, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Have a good weekend. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries will have the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Oh, what is on second? You know what? Who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third base! <laughs> And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Los Angeles right-handed pitcher Tony Gonsolin. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. So far, 25-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers starter Tony Gonsolin has had what can best be described as an up-and-down year. He was up on June 26, 2019 to make his Major League debut against the Diamondbacks, then down again on June 27th back to AAA Oklahoma City. Up again on July 30th, where he didn't start but hurled four innings against the Rockies, allowing one earned run. Then down again the next day on July 31st, back to AAA, Oklahoma City. And up again most recently on August 2nd for an August 5th tilt against the Cardinals, where he tossed six scoreless before, wait for it, being sent back down to AAA, Oklahoma City on August 6th. Well, it's good to have options, maybe, for Tony Gonsolin, but most certainly for the Dodgers. Through three Major League games, two starts, Tony Gonsolin has compiled a 1-1 one one record with a 3.21 ERA. Not bad. Not bad at all. But his pedestrian 2-4 record with a 4.35 ERA through 13 AAA starts is a little worrisome. That's why Tony Gonsolin, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But don't let those pedestrian numbers, a 2-4 record and 13 starts with a 4.35 ERA, fool you. His stuff is filthy, according to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which says that Tony Gonsolin's quick, high 3-4 arm slot adds deception, and his fastball and splitter allow him to dominate. No kidding, that's an understatement. 
Tony Gonsal and Strong for Pitch Arsenal features a triple-digit 100-mile-per-hour fastball, a mid-80s splitter, plus a decent curve and slider. So let's plug that into the previous 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst description where Tony Gonsolin's quick, high three-fourths arm slot adds deception and a 100-mile-per-hour fastball and a plus mid-80s splitter that allows him to dominate. Do you see why we're excited? Now let's quantify what it means for number 46, Tony Gonsolin, to dominate. Baseball HQ's dominance rate, one of many tools found on BaseballHQ.com, represents the per-game equivalent of strikeouts per nine and assumes that baseball's best pitchers will have a strikeout per nine rate of nine or higher. Well, Tony Gonsolin has locked and loaded a dominance rate of 11 strikeouts per nine in 2019, closely resembling his 10.5 career strikeouts per nine in the minors, which places him among baseball's best pitchers, according to the nine strikeouts per nine benchmark at BaseballHQ.com. More importantly, your league dominance rate increases proportionately when you consider adding Tony Gonsolin as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, including our marquee matchup for the weekend, St. Louis right-hander Jack Flaherty in Cincinnati to face left-hander Alex Wood. And here with the lowdowns on all the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend, an opener joins our 14 starters with matchup ratings above one. But only one guy has a matchup rating above two, and that's 2018 National League Cy Young Award winner Jacob deGrom on Saturday. Like songwriter Wilbert Harrison, deGrom is going to Kansas City. He'll bring a matchup rating of 261 along with him, even though he will have to face a DH. It'll be a battle of Jacobites, as the Royals' Jacob Junis counters with his matchup rating of 006. That's a matchup rating differential of 255 in favor of DeGrom, so he's likely to prevail in the city nicknamed City of a Thousand Nicknames. The number two matchup rating of the weekend is 193, and it belongs to Herman Marquez of the Colorado Rockies for his Saturday start at home in Coors Field. The venue might make you shy away, but he's also half of our marquee miss matchup. The Miami Marlins' Hector Noisy may have improved upon his weekend worst matchup rating of minus 513 from last weekend, but he's once again the weekend's worst at minus 148. That makes a matchup rating differential of 341 in favor of Marquez. Depending on your league standings, you may need to take a chance on Marquez in our marquee mismatchup. And the Rockies' hitters should provide plenty of run support, as the Marlins' pitching pair has combined matchup ratings of minus 204. The Chicago Cubs are the only team facing two starters with matchup ratings in the weak start range this weekend. They'll be in Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park, so there may not be many fireworks, but the Pirates pair also has combined matchup ratings of minus 204. Our marquee matchup features the smallest matchup rating differential among matchups in which both pitchers have strong start matchup rating recommendations. It's in the Queen City of Cincinnati on Sunday, and the matchup rating differential is 062. The Reds' 28-year-old left-hander Alex Wood has a matchup rating of 066 for his fifth start of the season. He missed the first four months with back woes. Wood is going up against the St. Louis Cardinals' red-hot right-hander 23-year-old Jack Flaherty. Flaherty's matchup rating is 128. 
The Cardinals are tied for the top spot in the National League Central with their arch rivals, the Chicago Cubs. St. Louis has the Majors' sixth best record over its past 30 games and the seventh best over the past 20. The Cards' run differential is just 24, but baseball reference still gives them a 50-50 chance of making the postseason. On the road, the Redbirds are 29-32, versus teams under 500, they they're 33-20, and, and versus left-handers, they're 11-13. At home, the Red Legs are 33-28. Against teams over 500, they are 36-46. And, and versus right-handers, they're 43-48. Cincinnati is 500 or below in its past 10, 20, and 30 games. The Reds' run differential is 26, and baseball reference gives them only a 5% chance of making the postseason as they're seven and a half games behind St. Louis and Chicago. While all that gives the Cardinals a nice edge, here's something to ponder. The baseball reference Pythagorean win-loss record, which is derived from a formula originally devised by Bill James to estimate what a team's win-loss record should be based on its run differential, would flip the Reds' record from 58-63 and 63 to 62-57, and 57, only a game and a half behind the cards. Alex Wood is off to a slow start since his return to action for the Reds. Three of Wood's four efforts have been PQS disasters, though the other was PQS dominant. He's matched his BPV of last season at 107, but despite posting a career-best control rate of only 1.4 walks per nine innings pitched, leading to a career-best command ratio of five strikeouts per walk, Wood is posting career-worsts in whip, expected ERA, and roto value. The culprits are a home run per nine rate three times his career norm and a home run per fly ball rate twice his career norm. Even considering his small four-start sample of less than 20 innings pitched, Wood's skills metrics fail to engender any confidence for a quick comeback in Great American Ballpark. Jack Flaherty has reeled off five PQS dominant starts in his past seven outings, with the other two being PQS threes. One of those PQS threes was versus the Reds in Cincinnati on July 2. That's a bit worrisome, but Flaherty's average PQS score over those seven starts since July 7 is 4.14. For the months of June, July, and August, Flaherty has BPVs of 127, 130, and 175, respectively. In 24 games started this season, Flaherty's BPV is now 129. Since his rolling five-game average ERA reached 780 after that start in Cincinnati on July 2, Flaherty's past seven starts have brought it down to an amazing 0.58. He'll be hard to stop this Sunday. To recap, load your lineups with Rockies and Cubs hitters. If you need to take the Coors Field Factor risk, give Herman Marquez a go. And take Jake DeGrom and Jack Flaherty. Go to the Teams tab at BaseballHQ.com and use our Pitcher Matchups tool to choose your pitchers every day and your hitters every week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about who's on first in 2020. A Twitter thread the other day, I think Jeff Erickson started it, asked an interesting fantasy baseball question. Who's going to be the first pick in a 5x5 draft in 2020? What made it interesting to me was that for the first time in many years, the obvious answer is not Mike Trout. Of course, Trout has been a fairly obvious topic every year since he soared to fantasy dominance back in 2012, although he was well off the pace last season relative to his history. 
Sure, some years there have been modest discussions about possible alternatives, usually based on what pretender to the throne had a good previous season. But when the actual draft started and the chips were down, Trout has regularly always been the consensus number one by ADP. But now, not only is there a legitimate alternative to Trout, there are two, Christian Yelich and Ronald Acuna Jr. On that Twitter thread, I weighed in with a typical response, which is to say, somewhat off the cuff and completely not analytical. I just said my top two would be Yelich first and Acuna second, with Trout out of the running because, well, he's out of the running. His stolen base attempts have sharply declined this year, and that caps his overall value, especially in a situation where stolen bases are so valuable. And since I sent that hasty response, is there any other kind on Twitter, I've had a chance to mull the question over and to talk about it with people whose opinions I value a lot. As a result of all that cogitating, let me criticize my response that the first two taken should be Yelich number one and Acuna number two. Upon further review, I wasn't sure I had the order correct. I was influenced by Yelich's current $46 to $45 lead in Baseball HQ's year-to-date valuations for 5x5, which he has amassed despite having 90 fewer at-bats than Acuna. He has five more home runs and four more RBIs, despite that at-bat deficit, and he's only five stolen bases behind, as well as 18 fewer runs. And he has a 34-point advantage in batting average and a 47-point margin in on-base percentage for leagues that wisely and correctly use on-base percentage as a category. As well, when I prorated all the hitters to 550 at-bats, Yelich was almost $13 in value ahead. In counting stats, he tied Acuna in runs and stolen bases and opened up huge leads in homers and RBIs, all of course while retaining his advantage in batting average and OBP. Now, the counterfactual in all of this is that Yelich is 90 at-bats behind Acuna for a reason. He's been missing games. He has had lower back issues, which cost him 14 games this season, a five-game layoff at the end of April, three in May, a couple in July, and four straight games in August. As well, there's a truism that stolen bases are a young man's game, and Yelich is six years older than Acuna. Even when he was younger, Yelich was only ever really a low 20 stolen base threat, while Acuna has legitimate 40-40 potential, which could start as soon as this season, and he'll be a year older, just 22 though, when 2020 rolls around. It seems the key question for number one pick holders in 2020 will be how much to discount Yelich for the risk relating to his stolen base potential because of his age and that aching back. Even though this year's prorated numbers say he's pretty much on a par with Acuna as a 30-ish stolen base guy, all the stolen base upside looks like it's on Acuna's side, which is a critical component in Acuna's favor as a game-wide stolen base numbers in general start to slide. This season's prorated numbers have already shown that Yelich is a low 30s peak in the stolen base department, and he hasn't even attempted a theft since the middle of July. Yelich also has those back problems which have done in many a fine player over the years and which undoubtedly add to his risk. That said, Acuna actually has more DL days over the past three seasons than Yelich, 32-10, to 10, so it's not as though Acuna completely shields his owners from any injury risk at all. Finally, we have to credit Yelich for his better skills, like plate discipline. He has a 20.2 strikeout rate compared with Acuna's 24%, and a 12.6 walk rate while Acuna is under 10. That puts a little safer limit on the risks relating to batting average and on-base percentage, as well as avoiding slumps. 
We also have to give props for Yelich's far better demonstrated clout. Yelich has 51 home runs per 550 at-bats this season. Acuna's down at 38. His average exit velocity of 93.4 is 2.5 miles an hour better than Acuna's 90.8. Yelich has a 49.2% hard hit rate versus 47.2 for Acuna, and Yelich's 16.9 barrels per batted ball versus 15.3 is another clear lead. Yelich also has a very favorable home park. It's hard to go wrong with either candidate, and for that matter, picking Trout first overall wouldn't be outrageous either. Perhaps the best plan is, if you're in a Kentucky Derby system, pick 3-2-1 as your top options. That way you know you're bound to get a truly premium talent at that number 3 spot while retaining a bit of advantage later through a snake draft. If I get number 1, I'm sticking with Christian Yelich, barring any further, more definitive injury news. Another truism says we need to be more aware of risk at the top of the table. A high floor is more important than a high ceiling. Considering his profile, his skills, and the fact that he will have been the top earner in fantasy baseball for two straight seasons once this year is up, I think that floor belongs to Christian Yelich. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 36 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle Podcast. Rob is a fine baseball and fantasy baseball analyst. He's a past overall champion of the NFBC main event. And as you heard, he's a great guy to just talk some baseball with. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.